0: And since I bought my 2016 F-150 truck, the list of standard amenities that make a truck feel like a luxury vehicle have only grown. Tough this smart can only be called F-150. Find your local Ford dealer at Ford.com. Pro access tailgate available starting spring 2024. See owner's manual for important operating instructions. Rack your look for
1: spring at Nordstrom Rack and save up to 60% on brands you love. Rag & Bone, Vince, Marc Jacobs, Adidas, Joe's, and more. Great brands, great prices every day at Nordstrom Rack. Score new dresses, denim, sandals, designer bags, and sunglasses, plus updates for the family and home. Get your spring on for less, up to 60% less, today at your Nordstrom Rack store. What will you find?
0: Talking about the Black Panthers today, not the movie that is still in theaters, that has already made roughly $1.5 billion worldwide. Seriously, against a $210 million budget, as if Disney needed even more money. Good God. Pretty soon, we Americans will be living in the United States of Disney. Uh, Not talking about the large cats that look super cuddly, but could easily claw your face off, uh, right off your skull, and then pop what's left of your skull uh, like a grape in its powerful bad kitty jaws. Talking about the black nationalist African American revolutionary group that kicked off in 1966, the Black Panther political party that rose from the ashes of Malcolm X and stood as a fierce fighting example of black power during the civil rights turmoil of the 1960s. Talking about a very complicated, very polarizing group of freedom fighters and neighborhood protectors. Not an easy topic for a white dude to cover, especially one living in Idaho, but I'm just dumb enough to give it a go. May Nimrod have mercy on my soul. The Black Panthers have a complex history. They fought for racial equality. They fought for a better future for black children. They fought the police. They fought the FBI. They fought other revolutionary groups. They fought each other. They did a lot of fighting. And we're going to thoroughly suck their fight that was at times incredibly inspirational and at other times at best morally questionable and almost always controversial today on Time Suck. You're listening to Time Suck. Happy Monday, time suckers. Working fucking wait. Uh, happy Black History Month to my melatonin-enhanced meat sacks. Hail Nimrod, hail Luciferina. Praise Bojangles and Triple M. Thoughts go out to our Australia suckers devastated by recent terrible, catastrophic flooding. Uh, read that over twenty thousand homes may have been lost. Uh, just devastating. I uh, hope all of you listeners over there are A-OK. Uh, Time Suckers is brought to you again today by the Brougham podcast. Brougham is a show about how it's OK to be a dude, but all dudes should be better dudes. Each week on Brougham, Joe and Ben pick a topic that they think uh, dudes could use a little help with. And, and based on what I've heard so far, this is fantastic info, not just for dudes, but for all meat sacks. How to enjoy art, how to talk to women, how to build wealth how to navigate discussions of different types of relationships. The guys are going to be talking about how uh, your place is gross and how to fix it this week. Joe and Ben will share ideas on how to make your place less disgusting, practical tips like get white towels so you can bleach them when you know, when you forget them in the washer for two days and then you don't have to spend uh, the rest of your life smelling like uh, mold and mildew. Joe asked me to share any cleaning tips I have, but I'm a filthy dirtbag and I should probably listen to this episode of Bro'em. A lot of great topics, to honestly discussed. So give it a shot. Tune in each week for new topics, new discussions, and new ways to continue seeking enlightenment through deadlifts. A podcast ran by time suckers and space lizards. Broem, broem it up. Uh, B R O A U M dot com for more info. Link in the episode description. You can push a button on the time suck web or app website. Why do you call it web website? It's called what? I don't know. Something, you know, you know what I'm talking about. Uh, thanks to the Spacers' monthly Patreon contributions it now allow us to give $1,600 this month to the Cancer Research Institute. Hail Nimrod. The Cancer Research Institute is a 501c3 nonprofit organization dedicated to harnessing the human body's immune systems, power to control, and potentially cure all types of cancer. They fund the most innovative clinical and laboratory research around the world, support the next generation of the field's leaders, serve as a trusted source of information on immunotherapy for cancer patients and caregivers. Thanks to anyone uh, also who recently purchased our Valentine's Day-themed TimeSuck pins. Uh, Check them out in the TimeSuck Shopify store. Don't have to be just for Valentine's, Uh, along with recent meat sack sweatshirts, so many other fun goodies. Uh, Thank you to Access Apparel for for, uh, creating so many fun goodies with us, and thank you to Danger Brain. For creating so many fun designs. Uh recording this in advance of the Madison, Wisconsin shows, hope they were amazing. Hope they went well. Uh the happy murder tour to Philly this week, get to get to the punchline. Shows in Salt Lake City at Wise Guys next week downtown. Some shows already sold out. Uh, Hill Nimrod for that. And then the Stardome in Birmingham, the Punchline in Atlanta. That show is now sold out. Contacted the venue about trying to add a second show. Don't know if that'll happen. Uh Zany's in Nashville, stand up live in Huntsville, Alabama. Check out dancomas.tv for a full year of fun shows. More live su- uh, time sucks coming up in Cleveland, Nashville, Spokane, San Francisco, Orlando, Phoenix, Denver, Grand Rapids, and Tacoma. Time right now for the Black Panthers. To understand the Black Panthers of the 1960s, to understand why this organization was ever thought up or formed in the first place, you have to understand what life was like for many black Americans in America in the 1960s as best as you, as best you can, uh, particularly those living in urban areas. This is one of those sucks where context, real important, like super duper important. Before I head down the uh, the road of today's suck, uh, just know that I, I I love my black meat sacks, my my white meat sacks, and my law enforcement meat sacks. All of you Uh probably going to hit uh, that note several times today. You know, this, this is this is just a, you'll see as we go through this episode uh, why I say this now, but it is just, um, it's a polarizing topic for, for a variety of reasons. It's just, it's very complex. Obviously, as a white man, I can't personally speak to what it is like to live as a black American in this or in any era. Not going to try to do so. Although, according to my 23andMe results, I am, in fact, 0.3% Sudanese, 0.1% uh, sub-Saharan African. Uh, not, not kidding about uh, kidding about acting like that gives me, uh, any, any right to talk about anything, not kidding about the results. Um, but yes, obviously my results do not enlighten me in any way whatsoever to the historical struggle and plight of many black Americans. Before I dive into the meat of this episode, just know that I, uh, I do realize I'm white as fuck. Uh, I know I can't personally relate to widespread racial discrimination on any level. Just found this story fascinating. Wanted to suck it, follow where the truth and logic took me. Uh, meat sacks of all color, including myself, all rationally, critically thinking, empathetic meat sacks can, I hope, at least understand what it's like to struggle. Hope we all at least recognize, uh, you know, that others are struggling and can empathize with them to some degree. We're all part of the same human experience. Another important disclaimer before I go further, uh, I am I am very racist. I just want you to keep that in mind uh, when it comes to Polish people. Many of you know that I have some extreme prejudice and uh, and that's not widely accepted, you know, my views. So uh, I just want you to know that I'm not, I'm not ready to accept the Polish people as, as full-fledged humans quite yet, and that's my right, and, uh, and I'm done with that tired joke uh, now for this episode. I just can't seem to stay away from it. It just keeps popping up in my head. No, real disclaimer now, when it comes to issues that involve race, just like politics, religion, gender, uh, you know, et-, et cetera, things have a tendency to leave the arena of logic and enter the realm of emotion real quick. It's sensitive shit, and, uh, and that is why I'm going to throw out some numbers to kick off the show. A little bit of math. Numbers that make the case that life on average was unquestionably way fucking harder for black Americans than it was overall for white Americans in the 1960s, as it still is overall today. And that's not my opinion. That's a statistical fact. has been documented by numerous comprehensive nonpartisan studies time after time after time. And if you're thinking, well, I'm not black. Life isn't easy for me. I'm struggling. I, wor- I worry about rent every month. I know plenty of black people way better off than my poor white ass uh, making more money than me make more money than my family ever has. I struggle far more in every meaningful way than the people I know are struggling. What the fuck, dude? I get it. Your feelings are valid. Your struggle is real. Your hardships are very real. Uh, hell yes, they are not denying that one bit. But this suck isn't about comparing uh, one individual life or the life of uh, lives of one particular neighborhood or community to uh, another isolated life or another isolated like community or neighborhood. It, it's about cultural trends. It's about trends, you know, uh, overall uh, overall tendencies for for the nation itself. On average, members of every race but African-American doing better than members uh, of African descent in the United States because statistically when it comes to average education level, average income, average incarceration rate, no one has had a rougher go of it than black Americans. Uh, there are roughly a metric shit ton of stats that backs this claim up. And, th- and these aren't liberal agenda numbers taken from uh, uh, you know, some, some, some nonsense place for my more socially conservative listeners. This isn't from the liberal media, quote unquote, you know, take, take a deep breath, grab a stress ball, fuck, squeeze it. Uh, the numbers I'll be re- relaying you or to you today, uh, are not gathered from white guilt. Snowflake. They haven't been taken from social justice warrior dot a fucking river. They're taken from either the U S Bureau of labor, the U S census bureau, or the U S Bureau of justice. And if you think that those organizations are conspiratorially motivated in favor of the plight of black Americans, well, if I can, you're not a logical person. You might as well turn this off now because there's quite literally nothing I can say uh, to make a- any of this appealing to you. For those of you still listening, hopefully everyone, here are some numbers. According to the U.S. Census Bureau, the average household income for a white household in 2017 was $65,273. Average household income, 2017. Uh, for a white family, Uh, the average household income for a black household, 40,258. That means that white households made just uh, as recently as 2017, on average, uh, over 62% more than black households. Hope you appreciate those numbers. My dumbass had to relearn how to use Microsoft Excel uh, to gather those. Why? U.S. Census Bureau, why? Put it in a fucking PDF like every other place would do. Um, Anyway, U.S. Bureau of Labor Statistics taken between 2014-2016 showed that the average household income for black Americans was lower than any other ethnic group, lower than white, American Indian, Hispanic, multi-race, Pacific Islander, and Asian. Uh, Back in 1967, the earliest year that the U.S. Census Bureau data exists for for U.S. household household income by race, and this is just two years after the Panthers were formed, no, one year after actually, uh, the disparity was even greater. Uh, And we'll get into the time suck timeline for the Panthers here soon. But yeah, back in 1967, the median household income for whites, $44,700 compared to $24,700 for blacks, white uh, people made just under 81% more money than black people on average. That's, fu- that's, concre- that's crazy. Uh, that's some serious disparity. Uh, no consolation to you if you're some poor as fuck white person living in 1967, but clearly overall black Americans not doing nearly as well as white Americans and, and racist discriminatory uh, practices, you know, c- culturally, uh, politically played a large role in that difference. How could they not? According to the 2015 U.S. Census statistics, uh, around to- 36% of white Americans have at least a bachelor's degree Compared to roughly 22% of black Americans, almost 64% more common for white people on average to have a bachelor's degree than black people as recent as 2015. Uh, The gap was even wider back in 1965. Uh, And this is right around uh, uh, when the Black Panther Party was formed, the year before. Uh, Around 51% of white Americans had graduated high school compared to only 27% of black Americans. Whites on average were almost 89% more likely to have a four-year college degree than black Americans, damn near 90% more likely uh, to hold a college degree. Discrimination for sure playing a large role here. Generations of discrimination following centuries of actual literal enslavement. Now let's talk about incarceration. According to 2016 Bureau of Justice Prison Statistics, Black Americans made up 12% of the total U.S. population but made up 33% of the total U.S. incarcerated population currently serving prison sentences. And I only add that little caveat because uh, that differentiates th- these numbers, as uh, people having sentences uh, as opposed to people who just might be being held for like an upcoming trial or something. Uh, white Americans made up 64% of the total population, made up 30% of the prisoner population. In 2016, black Americans were incarcerated at over five times the rate of white Americans. That's an alarming disparity. Uh, That one was actually not worse in the 1960s. It was just as bad. In 1960, uh, blacks were also incarcerated five times as often as whites. So so why uh, the 1960s? Why did the Black Panthers form in this decade? Well, because as bad as things still were, uh, things were getting better due to the civil rights movement, and they were supposed to be getting a lot better. It, it it was now safer to be visibly and publicly furious about you know racial mistreatment, thanks to new counterculture, uh, the new counterculture movement, uh, than it was like a decade before. You know, now there was finally a little safer to to show your anger. Centuries of pent up rage were pouring out of many uh, African Americans. We, we've talked about the counterculture movements of the 1960s and previous sucks, such as the suck of Charles Manson, Jim Jones, Children of God sucks, amongst others. Uh, the American youth of all races were questioning authority very differently than their parents or grandparents had. There was just a growing distrust of the government, uh, partly to do with the, uh, you know, the growing Vietnam conflict, partly to do with the JFK assassination. You know, an inspiring leader of many young Americans in the early 60s was JFK, and then assassinated in 1963, and and many believed the government had a hand in it. I I still kind of believe that today. Uh, Citizens were questioning the government at levels uh, not seen since the buildup to the Civil War. Many white youths were strongly opposed to the racial segregation of their parents and grandparents' generations. Or grandparents, uh, they were embarrassed by it. They also opposed a growing conflict in Vietnam. Uh, young black Americans, particularly disillusioned in the 1960s, they just uh, seen their fathers and grandfathers fight in World War II and the Korean War, just as honorably as white soldiers then come back to a segregated country that did not honor them the same as they honored white soldiers, made them use different bathrooms, sleep in different hotels, shop in different stores, go to different schools. Uh, They were still being drafted into the military to fight honorably for a country that they didn't feel was treating them honorably and, and wasn't. For a more comprehensive look into racial segregation, by the way, you can revisit the Ku Klux Klan suck or the Martin Luther King Jr. suck. I assure you it existed. The Civil Rights Act was passed in 1960, a federal law that established inspection of local voter registration polls and introduced penalties for anyone who obstructed someone's attempt to register to vote. And then the Civil Rights Act of 1964 was passed, which ended segregation in public spaces and banned employment discrimination on the basis of races, uh, on the basis of race, excuse me, color, religion, sex, or nationality. Years of fighting and marches and protests and spilled blood and beatings and death led to the passage of this legislation, and things were now supposed to be better. Except they really weren't. Life for the average Black American did not actually get that much better after this legislation was passed. Not immediately, anyway. And there was a feeling of of betrayal, of great betrayal. Why had so many sacrificed to pass this new legislation to end racial discrimination only to see new laws not being enforced in many places or people finding loopholes to get around these laws and still be very discriminatory? Imagine running the longest race of your life. Like you don't think you can finish. Your body's starting to revolt. Your muscles are cramping up. You're feeling dizzy. Your lungs have been burning for miles. You got blisters on your feet that are starting to bleed. Your knees Aching a little more with every step, but then way out in the distance, you see that finish line. The thought of crossing that finish line is the only thing that's keeping you running, right? The only thing psychologically motivating you is, okay, I just got to get there. I just got to get there, and then this is over, and then I accomplished it. I finished this race, and then with the last year of your strength, you cross that line. You collapse in victory. You fucking, you did it. It took everything, but you made it. Now imagine as you lay there, your lungs are on fire. Your lips are cracked for miles of hard breathing. Imagine some asshole standing over you saying, what the fuck are you doing? This race isn't over. This race will never be fucking over. You run all you want. You will never finish. You will never win. I imagine that is roughly how the 1960s felt on some level to many black Americans. They won, and then they asked to see what was behind door number three, and it turned out to be someone holding a big sign that just said, more of the fucking same. I mean, imagine just anybody. Imagine the feelings of rage you would have. How dare you? Black Americans continue to suffer widespread discrimination, economic, social inequality after the passage of that legislation. Uh, Many black Americans have been moving uh, to the cities of the north and the west for jobs, moving to downtown areas in the 40s and 50s, this great migration, only to find those jobs, then relocate to the suburbs. Uh, Many black populations ended up getting concentrated in poor urban neighborhoods uh, called ghettos, full of rampant unemployment, substantial, uh, substandard housing, widespread social problems such as drug use and crime. Black Americans saw themselves continuing to be excluded from political representation, uh, universities, all sorts of employment areas, social strata, such as the middle class. And and I know you can point to examples of black Americans who who did grow up in the ghettos at this time, went to college, became doctors, lawyers, accountants, scientists, professors, and more who made good livings and pulled themselves up by their bootstraps, so to speak. Those examples are real. But I feel like you also have to admit, it's a lot harder to pull yourself up by your bootstraps if uh, it feels like almost everyone in the country is stomping on your fucking boots all the time. Uh, I've experienced racism as a white man in small ways here and there throughout my life. I've personally not been considered for for various comedy festivals, mostly when I was younger in comedy in the the past because they would just tell me straight up some version of the quote, we already have enough white guys. Uh, I have had that said to me. You know, I've had TV concepts I wanted to pitch, get rejected before even getting looked at because the network was looking for uh, quote, more diversity in programming, which is code for anything but more straight white dudes. I mean, that is a form of racial discrimination and it pissed me off every time it happened, but there was always another job waiting for me if I wanted to work hard enough for it. What if I never uh, exp- uh, like experienced uh, you know anyone considering me for a job because of my skin color? What if there wasn't any other doors being opened? You know, I haven't experienced ever an entire community, an entire nation taking a look at me and just being, ah, nope, next, go on, get out of here. Uh, I've never lived in constant fear of incarceration because, uh, you know, racist police officers patrol my neighborhood hoping to beat me or or beat someone who looked like me with a club. And I only bring all this up to illustrate that life was indeed harder for black Americans than white Americans in the in the 1960s. And that is why the Black Panthers formed. Right. They, They formed. They were they'd watched Martin Luther been watching Martin Luther King, you know, many people have been trying more peaceful protests that wasn't going well all the time and and some people were were sick of trying to go that route and were like, "No, man, let's let's get fucking mad, let's get angry and let's uh let's take what's ours." You know, type of attitude. And then before the plan, uh, the, the Panthers come along, uh Malcolm X came along. Malcolm X paved the way for the Panthers. Without Malcolm X, there would be no Black Panthers. The Panthers heavily influenced by the teachings of Malcolm X. A man who will be a a subject of a future suck, I'm I'm positive. Malcolm X, born as Malcolm Little, was a preacher's son. His father was also an early black nationalist named Marcus Garvey, who died after being hit by a streetcar, quite possibly murdered by white supremacists strongly opposed to his pro-black messages. His death left Malcolm's family with little income, such little income that Malcolm's mother cooked dandelion greens she'd picked on the street to feed her kids at one point. That's when you know you were super poor. Like, I'll joke about growing up poor and eating a lot of Hamburger Helper, small town Idaho, but someone someone like uh, Malcolm would say, you got, you got to eat meat? You weren't fucking poor? You ate meat? Eating burger? Dandelion broth, made from dandelions, picked from cracks in the sidewalk. That's poor. Uh, Malcolm's mother was then committed to an insane asylum when he was 14. I imagine it's hard to not lose your goddamn mind when you're making your kids dandelion broth. Malcolm ended up getting raised the last few years of his childhood in foster homes by other family members. After serving a seven-year prison stint for robbery he committed at age 21, he became a prominent black nationalist leader and minister for the Nation of Islam. And Malcolm X came to be known nationally, uh, initially because of an incident of police brutality in New York City. Uh, Police brutality, more than any other single issue, would lead to the formation of the Black Panthers. On April 26, 1957, Hinton Johnson, a, a, a member of the Nation of Islam and two other passerby, also Nation of Islam members, witnessed police officers beating a young black man with the night with their nightsticks. When Johnson shouted, you're not in Alabama, this is New York, and tried to help the man, one of the officers turned on him and beat the shit out of him with his club. beating within an inch of his life. Johnson suffered brain contusions and subdural hemorrhaging, and then after the beating, all four black men were arrested. Someone who witnessed the event, found and told Malcolm X, and he and a small group of black Muslims went to the police station and demanded to see Johnson. Police initially lied, told him that Johnson wasn't even being held there. But then when a crowd of other African-Americans hearing about the event, hearing about the beating, excuse me, not event, beating, and gathering outside the station grew to about 500 people, the, the police officers did allow Malcolm X to speak with Johnson. Once Malcolm X saw what had been done to Johnson, he insisted on an ambulance taking him to Harlem Hospital. Uh, Johnson was taken to the hospital. His injuries were treated. And by the time he was returned to the police station, roughly 4,000 people were now gathered outside the station. An angry mob had formed. Authorities were getting nervous. Shit was tense. Inside the station, Malcolm X, an attorney, made bail arrangements for two of the Muslims. Johnson was not bailed, but police did say he could... could, uh, um, he could go back to the hospital until his arraignment the following day. Malcolm X, had, he hadn't he had won the war, but he won a battle with officers that day. And so he stepped outside the station house. He motioned for the crowd to be quiet. Once they were quiet, he farted one time, just one time, loudly, powerfully, uh, poetically, triumphantly. It was the signal the crowd had been waiting for, and they stormed the station. In the end, 50 riders. 35 police officers died. An additional 65 officers, 172 riders were wounded. Four structures, including the precinct, burned to the ground in the clash that followed that fateful fart. The riot, uh, that riot is the origin of the term Bronx cheer. That's right, the Bronx cheer can be traced back to Malcolm X in 1957. It's also known as the fart heard around the world. Uh, and that's not true. Uh, if Malcolm X farted, that, I, I just that this, this shit's so heavy. I gotta lighten it up from time to time. If Malcolm X farted that day, no one wrote about it. Uh, he didn't say anything and it's not relevant to the story. What really happened? He did come outside. He gave a hand signal to the crowd and the crowd dispersed. They knew what the hand signal was. One police officer would later say, no one man should have that much power within a month. Uh, I'm guessing he said some other things that weren't uh, quoted in the text. Um, within a month, the New York city police department arranged to keep Malcolm X under surveillance. Tensions between the police and the black community in New York and around the country were growing. It was issues like this that pushed Malcolm X to hate not only police officers, but basically white people in general. He started pushing an agenda via the Nation of Islam that white people were, quote, devils, that blacks were superior to whites, and that the demise of the white race was imminent. He was critical of the civil rights movement, even labeling Dr. King Jr. a chump. And he called uh, Dr. King's uh, 1963 March on Washington the farce on Washington. Now, do I like... This element of his messages, fuck no. Of course I don't. I don't like racism in any form. I don't like it when it's white against black, and I don't like it when it's black on white. But while I don't condone Malcolm X's, uh, you know, racist rhetoric, I do have more sympathy for him than I do, uh, you know, for some like KKK leader, for example. Because I feel like people are like, well, it's not okay for them to say. Why is it okay here? Not okay in, for either person to say that. I don't think. But. Uh, When you're the victim of consistent racial abuse, and then you in turn are like, well, fuck those people. I have more sympathy for you than when you are on the team or on the side of consistent perpetration of racial abuse, right? Malcolm's rage came from being a member of a race that truly was continually oppressed and victimized by the race that was in political and cultural power in the nation he was born and raised in. I mean, you know, he's... Different associations, the death of his father, you know, witnessing all these beatings. It makes more sense to me, I guess, is what I'm saying. Doesn't make it more right at the end of the day, but it makes it, to me, more understandable. It was the same rage that also would create the Black Panthers. It was the issue of police police brutality, again, that led to their creation. And law enforcement, time suckers, you know that I love you. Uh, you know I think the overwhelming majority of you are, are great goddamn citizens. You know that I, how much respect I have for you for putting your lives on the line to keep the public safe day after day after day. And I'm guessing you also know that some of your coworkers, or at least some of your professional predecessors either are, or in past times were sadistic, racist fucks. Like some people crave a position of authority to serve and protect others abuse it. Right. Uh, that's just, I I feel like that is just, uh, I would like to think common sense. The world has always had those meat sacks always will. And uh, Malcolm X and the Black Panthers after him weren't just uh, talking out of their asses when they complained about police brutality. And that wasn't a callback to my silly fart joke either. Hard to find stats specifically on incidents of police brutality in the 1950s and 1960s that compare police violence towards blacks against violence of any other race, including whites. But I, but I did find some interesting info that at least uh, illustrates a pervasive culture of prejudice that that no job sector, including law enforcement, would be immune to. In 1929... The Illinois Association for Criminal Justice published the Illinois Crime Survey conducted between 1927 and 1928. The survey sought to analyze causes of high crime rates in Chicago and Cook County, especially among criminals associated with Al Capone. But the survey also provided some unexpected data. Uh, Although African-Americans made up just 5% of the area's population at the time, they uh, constituted 30% of the victims of police killings. You don't get a number like that without a lot of racism. I mean, clearly many of the police at that time were far more likely to kill you if you were black than if you were white. Uh, Using 2015 data, racial minorities made up about 37.4% of the general population in the U.S. and 46.6% of armed and unarmed killings by police. Uh, They made up 62.7% of unarmed people killed by police. Wow. Wow. Uh, An analysis of FBI data found that black people accounted for 31% of police killing victims in 2012, even though they make up just 13% of the U.S. population. Although the data is incomplete because it's based on voluntary reports from police agencies around the country, it highlights the vast disparities in how some police were still using force as recently as 2012. A 2011 to 2014 study by a University of California Davis professor found, quote, evidence of a significant bias in the killing of unarmed black Americans relative to to unarmed white Americans in that the probability of being black unarmed and shot by police is roughly 3.49, so three and a half times the probability of being white unarmed and shot by police on average. I mean, again, that's a huge difference. That's not like a slight statistical anomaly. Three and a half times more likely. 2010 New York Governor's Task Force study uh, examining police on police shootings found even black and Latino police officers face a greater risk of being killed by other police. In cases of mistaken identity, nine out of 10 of off-duty police officers killed by other officers in the U.S. since 1982 have either been black or Latino. Nine out of 10. Again, clearly, when when, when white people say don't shoot, they're they're far more likely to be listened to than black people. 2013-2014 Stanford study of police practices in Oakland, California, where the Black Panthers would really get going as a movement, found that officers were disproportionately handcuffing blacks. 2,890 African-Americans were handcuffed but not arrested in a 13-month period compared to only 193 white people. When Oakland uh, officers pulled over a vehicle but didn't arrest anyone, 72 white people were handcuffed compared to nearly 1,500 African-Americans. I mean, that's an astronomical disparity. And if racial profiling is still occurring occurring now, which the stats consistently show is happening, happening, God, it's safe to assume this shit was way worse. In the 1950s and 60s, so much worse in the days before social media, YouTube, and everyone having a video camera on their phone, uh, phone kept everybody a little more honest. Uh, Martin Luther King Jr., you know, wasn't leading marches and leading sit-ins because everything was fine and dandy. Malcolm X wasn't talking about white devils because of the consistent love and respect coming his way from white people. And then in 1965, the year before our timeline was founded, or will begin, uh, two major incidents led to the formation of the Black Panther Party. One was the assassination of Malcolm X in February of 1965, and the other was the Watts riots in August of that year. On the evening of Wednesday, August 11th, 1965, 21-year-old Marquette Fry, an African-American man driving his mother's 1955 Buick, pulled over by California Highway Patrol Motorcycle Officer Lee uh, Minicus for alleged reckless driving in the Watts neighborhood of Los Angeles. After administering a field sobriety test, uh, Minicus, or Minicus, Uh, whatever, uh, placed Fry under arrest, radioed for his vehicle to be impounded. Marquette's brother, Ronald, a passenger in the vehicle, walked to their nearby house, bringing their mother, Rena Price, back with him to the scene of the arrest. When Rena Price arrived on the scene, she scolded Fry about drinking and driving, as he recalled years later in a 1985 interview with the Orlando Sentinel. And then the situation escalated quickly. Somebody shoved Price, Fry was struck, Price jumped an officer, and another officer pulled out a shotgun, and shit got crazy. Backup police officers attempted to arrest Fry by using physical force to subdue him. After community members reported that police had roughed up Fry and kicked a pregnant woman, angry mobs quickly formed. As the situation intensified, growing crowds of local residents watching the exchange began yelling and throwing objects at the police officers. They'd had enough, and a riot broke out. Police came to the scene to break up the crowd several times that night, but were attacked when people threw rocks and chunks of concrete at them. A 46-square-mile swath of Los Angeles was transformed into an active combat zone. For six days, nearly 4,000 members of the California National Guard would end up getting called in to suppress rioting that resulted in 34 deaths, 272 buildings being damaged or burned, 192 businesses and homes looted, 267 businesses completely destroyed. Overall, $40 million worth of damage occurred, which would be $320 million in 2018 dollars. And while the riots ended, the feelings of rage consuming many black Americans did not. Black youth are hearing Malcolm X or we're hearing before he was assassinated tell them that if white America won't leave them alone, they'll just have to burn the nation to the fucking ground and rebuild it. Malcolm X adamantly believed in bearing arms. He wasn't down with Dr. King's let's hold hands and pray about this shit. He wanted a revolution. Uh, April 3rd, 1964, he'd actually given a speech in which he encouraged African-Americans to use their right to vote and threatened the government with an armed response if African-Americans did not receive full voting equality. In the speech, he stated it's either the ballot or or the bullet. And that was one one of the slogans that would later be adopted by the Black Panthers. In his message to grassroots speech delivered in 1963, Malcolm X explained that armed self-defense among African-Americans was not only necessary, but also morally justifiable, citing the American Revolution, the French Revolution, Russian Revolution. He claimed all involved uh, huge losses of life and outlined a belief that a revolution that does not involve bloodshed is impossible. He said, look at the American Revolution in 1776. That revolution was for what? For land. Why did they want land? Independence. How was it carried out? Bloodshed. The French Revolution, what was it based on? The landless against the landlord. What was it for? Land. How did they get it? Bloodshed. Was no love lost? Was no compromise? Was no negotiation? The the Russian Revolution, what was it based on? Land, the landless against the landlord. How did they bring it about? Bloodshed. You haven't got a revolution that doesn't involve bloodshed. As long as the white man sent you to Korea, you bled. He sent you to Germany, you bled. He sent you to the South Pacific to fight the Japanese, you bled. But when it comes to seeing your own churches being bombed and little black girls murdered, you haven't got any blood. How are you going to be nonviolent in Mississippi as violent as you were in Korea? If it is wrong to be violent defending black women and black children and black babies and black men, then it is wrong for America to draft us and make us violent abroad in defense of her. And if it is right for America to draft us and teach us how to be violent in defense of her, then it is right for you and me to do whatever is necessary to defend our own people right here in this country. That's powerful shit. A lot of military references in that talk, you know, opposition to the growing conflict in Vietnam, also, was leading to the formation of the Black Panthers, even before the U.S. ever uh, really escalated the Vietnam conflict. Young American men were being drafted between 1954 and 1964, peacetime drafts. You know, from the end of the Korean War until the main escalation in Vietnam, the peacetime drafts inducted more than 1.4 million American men, on average of more than 120,000 per year. Many Panther leaders would practice would preach a message of why should we fight and die for a nation that doesn't fight for us? Right? A nation whose police profile beat and kill us, a nation that forces many of us to live in ghettos where jobs are scarce, where the schools our children go to are broken down and dangerous, where we can't make enough money to properly feed our children, where our children in addition to not having proper nutritional and educational access also don't have the proper access to hope for a better life. Now that the context has been laid down and backed up with some numbers, Numbers never gathered from wackadoodle dot. This will trick Whitey. Now let us jump into the Panthers with today's Time Stuck timeline after, after a word from another sponsor of today. Uh, Time Stuck is brought to you once again by the A-Hole Air Banjo, Uh, the A-Hole Air Banjo Academy. The A-Hole Air Banjo Academy's latest course, banjo power, plucking it to the man. Uh, You can sign up today. You don't always have to grab the air guitar when you're laying down some bomb tracks, to fuel a revolution. Rage Against the Machine, actually perfect for Air Banjo. Banang, tank pretang, pink pretang, tank tongue, tank pretang,
1: pink pretang, tank tong tank pretang, pink tang, pink, ping killing in the name of. Tang Tang but tank dang. Dana,
0: da 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 are the same That burn cross this Oh thing, ta, 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 ting, ta, ta, ting. I, I don't know Actually uh, Or how about Aretha Franklin Respect banjo Backup To get you in the mood To take No shit From anyone It's perfect Bang dang Bang dang Bang dang You want to overdo it
1: Bang dang What you want don't bang Baby I got Bang What you need bang, bang bang <laughs> <laughs> Probably overdoing it there.
0: Probably <laughs> overdoing it there. Little bit. <laughs> <laughs> you fuck! you get it? You get it! And I now I'm done now. I'm done again. I just had, it's fucking heavy? We have to, I have to break up here then. <laughs> oh. Am I ever getting tired of air banjo? I hope not. I hope not. Uh, Times Like is actually brought to you today by Lisa. Maybe people would have been nicer to each other back in the 50s and 60s if all meat sacks were sleeping better. People get grouchy when they don't get enough sleep. I do. Now, the only reason I don't get good sleep is because sometimes I don't go to sleep when I should. When I do go to sleep, when I actually get in the bed, I get great sleep because I'm on a Lisa mattress. A quality night's sleep helps you recover from distractions faster, prevents burnout, make better decisions, improve your memory, make fewer mistakes. It's not marketing, it's science. More sleep also helps you be uh, less of a dick. Uh, that's not marketing or science. It's just my opinion, but I do believe it to be true. So don't be a dick, sleep on a Lisa. That could be a slogan. If Lisa execs want to use it, I'll just, I'll sign away. I'll sign away my rights right now. You, I'll, I'll score it with the air banjo. If anybody from Lisa wants to have that in the background, bang for free, I'm just throwing that out there. Uh, Lisa builds a great mattress. They're a great company. Through their 110 program, they donate one mattress for every 10 they sell. That's more than 32,000 mattresses donated now uh, through over 1,000 nonprofits and counting. And the all-foam Lisa mattress is new and improved, featuring cooling, LSA, 200 foam for enhanced pressure relief for side sleepers. Just yesterday, I was snuggled up on my Lisa with my wife, Lindsay, Queen of Suck, and Ginger Bell and Penny Pooper, and I have to say, the dogs, they do seem to love it. They refuse to move off the bed. It's the only time I've ever heard either one of those little furry assholes growl at me. And I get it. You know, they don't want to get kicked off of Lisa. And I don't get up to do anything about it because I'm also very comfortable and cozy and I don't want to move. I'm too snugged up. So don't miss getting snugged up. Get some snug. Uh, Don't miss Lisa's President's Day sale. This is a new kick-ass Lisa deal. Uh, Get 15% off any mattress for a limited time at lisa.com slash timesuck when you use the promo code timesuck. That's L-E-E-S-A dot com slash TimeSuck promo code TimeSuck. Link in the episode description. Lease a button in the TimeSuck app. Black Panther timeline right now. Strap on those boots, soldier. We're marching down a TimeSuck timeline. On October 22nd, 1966, Oakland community organizer Bobby Seale An ex-con turned law student, Huey Newton, formed the Black Panther Party for Self-Defense, a revolutionary political organization on Seal's 30th birthday. Huey Newton was only 24. Originally, there were just six members. There was Albert Big Man Howard, Huey Newton, the defense minister, Sherman Forte, Bobby Seal, the chairman, Reggie Forte, and little Bobby Hutton, the treasurer. The concept of a Black Panther Party didn't originate in Oakland. It's just where it took hold. Uh, A group similar in mission statement, but different in name that just barely preceded the Panthers was the SNCC, Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee that formed in Lowndes County, Alabama in early 1966. Uh, Hopefully I'm saying Lowndes correct. That's a word I don't feel super confident about. The earliest organization actually called the uh, uh, Black Panther Party started in April of 1966, the New York Black Panther Party, but it was almost immediately infiltrated and placed under law enforcement surveillance and dissolved completely within a year. Uh, Actually, many Panther organizations formed around the country in 1966, but none really thrived like the Oakland chapter. Huey Newton was born in Monroe, Louisiana. And Huey, again, the the co-founder, born to an impoverished family of sharecroppers. His family moved to Oakland in 1945 when he was just three years old. As a teenager, he was arrested several times for criminal offenses, including gun possession, vandalism at age 14. Growing up in Oakland, uh, Newton said that he was made to feel ashamed of being black. Years later, in his autobiography, Revolutionary Suicide, he wrote, During those long years in Oakland public schools, I did not have one teacher who taught me anything relevant to my own life or experience. Not one instructor ever awoke in me a desire to learn more or to question or to explore the worlds of literature, science, and history. All they did was try to rob me of the sense of my own uniqueness and worth, and in that process nearly killed my urge to inquire, if only Huey had the culture, the curious to turn to. Hail Nimrod. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Ah, got fired up for a second there. Huey graduated from Oakland Technical High School in 1959, despite not knowing how to read. Uh, sounds like that high school was even easier than Salmon River High School, the place I graduated from in Riggins, Idaho. I would not be surprised if a few of my former classmates uh, also graduated not knowing how to read. Despite being literate. Newton was no dummy. He taught himself how to read before attending Merritt College in Oakland and then got into the San Francisco School of Law where he met Bobby Seale. Years after the dissolution of the Panthers in 1980, he'd received a PhD in social philosophy from the University of California at Santa Cruz. His dissertation was titled War Against the Panthers, A Study of Repression in America. The other co-founder, Robert Bobby Seale, was born in Liberty, Texas, son of a carpenter and a homemaker. When he was eight, his family moved to Oakland. Seale went to Berkeley High School, Dropped out, joined the U.S. Air Force. He was dishonorably discharged a few years later for fighting with the commanding officer. Feisty dude. After leaving, leaving the Air Force, he worked as a sheet metal mechanic for various aerospace plants while studying for his high school diploma at night. Another guy uh, who's no dummy. He'd later say, I worked in every major aircraft plant and aircraft corporation, even those with government contracts. I was a top flight sheet metal mechanic. After earning his high school diploma, Seal attended Merritt Community College, where he studied engineering and politics until 1962. In 1962, he first heard Malcolm X speak. He was inspired, so inspired, he joined the Afro American Association, AAA, a group on the campus devoted to advocating black separatism and lost interest in engineering. Through the AAA group, Seal met Huey Newton. Every time I say Huey's name, by the way, I immediately think of Huey Lewis in the news. It's just every single time I say "Hugh," I just right away in my head just I want a new drug, want a woman make me sick, bam, 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 want to woman him me crash my car, make me feel three feet thick. I can hear it, Lewis. Anyway, uh, in June of 1966, Seal began working at the North Oakland Neighborhood Anti-Poverty Center in their summer youth program, teaching Black American history and an ethic of responsibility toward other Black people living in your Black community. He and Newton met Bobby Hutton one of the original six. And Seal would describe the Panthers as an organization that represents black people and many white radicals relate to this and understand that the Black Panther Party is a righteous revolutionary front against this racist, decadent, capitalistic system. In addition to being influenced by the teachings of Malcolm X, who had once declared himself a communist in a letter to President Truman opposing U.S. involvement in the Korean War, the Black Panthers also heavily influenced by communist and socialist teachings. The FBI would declare them a communist organization. Like Malcolm X, the Panthers were influenced by the philosophies of Fidel Castro, Karl Marx, and others. They believed in a link between racism and the capitalist system. Uh, Huey Newton and fucking every single time. Huey Lewis. I want Huey Newton in particular identified as a Marxist Lenist, a Leninist. Lenin being, of course, the Russian revolutionary who served as the Soviet uh, the head of Soviet Russia from 1917 to 1924, who was heavily influenced by Putin and Juju. Put in your lunchbox, Shirley. Ditto, ditto, pootie! Learn about all that in the Stalin stock, if you're confused. Uh, despite sharing similarities with other African-American cultural nationalist organizations, such as the Universal Negro Improvement Association and Malcolm X's Nation of Islam, to which the Panthers were commonly compared, the Panthers immediately sought to set themselves apart from these other groups. Although all of these black center groups shared certain philosophical positions and tactical features, the Black Panther Party differed on a number of basic points. For example, whereas... African-American cultural nationalists generally regarded all white people as oppressors, the whole white devil talk of Malcolm X. Initially, at least, the Black Panther Party distinguished between racist and non-racist whites and allied themselves with progressive members of the latter group. Uh, You watch videos of old uh, Black Panther demonstrations, early ones, and you you typically see a fair amount of white supporters. Um, And whereas other black nationalists generally viewed all African-Americans as oppressed, the Black Panther Party believed that black capitalists and black elites could and typically did exploit and oppress other black people, especially the working class. The Black Panthers were also more militant than other black nationalist groups. Look at pictures, and they're often dressed up uh, like soldiers in a revolution, armed soldiers. To really understand what, what the Panthers were about, you have to get familiar with their 10-point program, which was a, a mission statement written by Huey Newton uh, shortly before the group even officially formed on October 15, 1966. Uh, number one, we want freedom, we want power to determine the destiny of our black community. We believe that black people will not be free until we are able to determine our destiny. Number two, we want full employment for our people. We believe that the federal government is responsible and obligated to give every man employment or a guaranteed income. We believe that if the white American businessman will not give full employment, then the means of production should be taken from the businessman and placed in the community so that the people of the community can organize and employ all of its people and give a high standard of living. I do understand the desire to have more equality here, of course, but, man, not through communism. It's amazing how many people were really into communism back then. It was just a different era. I mean, communism was new and exciting to numerous young liberals in the 1960s. Those who uh, have survived until today, though, I'm guessing the overwhelming majority have a very different opinion of communism now. Uh, Capitalism has its evils, for sure, but it's proven to provide a a far better quality of life than communism, right? Look at the human rights violations in North Korea, communist Russia, Cuba— China, et cetera. You know, innovative entrepreneurial capitalism fuels new technology, increases our standard of living. You don't see uh, North Korea kicking out the latest, greatest computers, automobiles, medical technology, et cetera, no. And I I don't have time in this suck to go into great detail about the differences between communism and capitalism here to properly illustrate how much better capitalism is. But communism time and time again, failed to improve the human condition. Fuck communism. Bojangles growls every time he hears that word. Uh, if this country ever shifts towards actual communism, I shit you not, I will leave. I will bounce out to any capitalist nation that will take me. I don't, I don't mind some socialism. We do have that now already. It's called Medicaid or Medicare or Social Security. But communism, no. Uh, I do understand, though, when it seems like you and your family and friends never get to be the factory owners like ever, then fuck yeah. Let's take it. Let's give that shit to the people, you know? Very, uh, very Rage Against the Machine. Tang, 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 tang. Can you imagine, like a, like a, there's a revolution going on. People are like, fuck, fight the power. What's that be? Fight the power, and then just one dude with the banjo. Tang, 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 They're like, Doug, enough with the goddamn banjo. It's killing the whole vibe. But I'm, I'm playing the same notes as everyone else. I'm in the same spirit. Tang, 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 Come on, I just, it's how I contribute to the. No, Doug. Get a fucking bass guitar, or shut up! Oh, all right. I. Maybe, what if I do it quiet? Tang, 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 tang. Uh, anyways, back to the ten point program. Number three: we Want to end a robbery by the capitalists of our black community? We believe that this racist government has robbed us, and now we are demanding the overdue debt of forty acres and two mules. 40 acres and two mules were promised 100 years ago as restitution for slave labor and the mass murder of black people. We will accept the payment in currency, which will be distributed to many communities. The Germans are now aiding the Jews in Israel for the genocide of the Jewish people. The Germans murdered 6 million Jews. The American racists have taken part in the slaughter of over 50 million black people. Therefore, we feel that this is a modest demand that we make. Now, restitution, this is something I've heard about uh, many, many years I've often heard of this 40 acres and two mules promise, but I've never looked into it until this week. So glad the the suck gave me an excuse to do so. Uh, Did the U.S. government promise to give 40 acres and two mules to freed slaves following the Civil War? The short answer is no, it actually did not. But hear me out. The notion does have historical origins. When a Union army uh, led by General William Tecumseh Sherman marched through Georgia in late 1864, thousands of newly freed uh, uh, black citizens followed along. Uh, until the arrival of federal troops, they had been slaves on plantations in that region. Sherman's army took the city of Savannah, Georgia, just before Christmas 1864. While in Savannah, Sherman attended a meeting organized in January 1865 uh, by Edwin Stanton, President Lincoln's Secretary of War. A number of local black ministers, most of whom had just recently lived as slaves, expressed the desires of the local black population. According to a letter General Sherman wrote a year later, Secretary Stanton concluded that if given land, the freed slaves could take care of themselves. And as land belonging to those who rose up in rebellion against the federal government had been declared abandoned by a recent act of Congress, there was land to distribute. Following the meeting, German drafted, uh, Sherman drafted an order, uh, General Sherman, which was officially designated as Special Field Orders Number 15. In this document, date of January 16th, 1865, Sherman ordered that the abandoned rice plantations from the sea to 30 miles inland would be, quote, reserved and set apart for the settlement of the freed slaves in the region. Okay. So land was promised to freed slaves. However, it was promised by a general in the army who did not have the authority to make that promise, right? It was not a bill passed through Congress and the Senate and then signed into law by the president. According to Sherman's order, each family shall have a plot of not more than 40 acres of tillable ground. At the time, it was generally accepted that 40 acres of land was the optimal size for a family farm. General Rufus Saxton was put in charge of administering the land along the Georgia coast. While Sherman's order stated, each family shall have a plot of no more than 40 acres of tillable ground. There was no specific mention of farm animals, no two mules. However, General Saxton did apparently provide surplus U.S. Army mules to some of the families granted land. And that's where the mule part of the story comes into play. Uh, And a lot of people heard about Sherman's order because it got a lot of national press. The New York Times on January 29, 1865, printed the entire text on the front page under the headline, General Sherman's Order Providing Homes for the Freed Negroes. Three months after Sherman issued his field orders, number 15, the U.S. Congress created the Freedmen's Bureau for the purpose of ensuring the welfare of millions of slaves being freed by the war. We talked about this bureau in the KKK suck. Uh, one initial task of the Freedmen's Bureau was the management of lands confiscated from those who had rebelled against the U.S. The intent of Congress, led by radical Republicans, was to break up the plantations and redistribute. Uh, re- oh my God, redistribute the lands so uh, so former slaves could have their own small farms. But then Lincoln was killed. Fuck. Uh, everything changed. Andrew Johnson became president in April 1865, and Andrew Johnson was kind of a douchebag. Uh, And Johnson, on May 28, 1865, issued a proclamation of pardon and amnesty to citizens in the South who would take an oath of allegiance. As part of the pardon process, lands confiscated from these people during the war would now be returned to them. So while the radical republicans had fully intended for there to be a massive redistribution of land from former slave owners to former slaves under the Reconstruction, and land was actually, in fact, given to many former slaves, Johnson's policy came in and fucked everything up. Approximately 40,000 former slaves received, uh, uh, received grants of land under Sherman's order, and then all of that was taken away by Andrew Johnson. So while there was no law or presidential promise of 40 acres and two mules, there was an attempt at restitution that was then revoked. Do I think that some form of restitution should be given to the descendants of slaves? Yes, but I don't know what it should look like. It's so complicated. It would be easy to say, oh, fuck yeah, fucking money, land, yeah, yeah. everything, whatever's fair, make it happen. But that's not how life works. Uh, does the U.S. government even have the ability to pay out the money that would be required? And if the descendants of slaves should get money, what about American Indians? What should they get? Who pays for all that now? Taxpayers? Uh, what about taxpayers whose ancestors weren't even in this country prior to 1865? Is that fair? The more you think about it, the more complex it gets. Uh, aren't there any other groups of Americans who aren't African-American also trapped in cycles of multi-generational socioeconomic disadvantages? Who, who else should be given some money? It's fucking tricky. Uh, which is why it should be looked into and not ignored. People smarter than me should take some time to actually dig into this issue. Every And, and people tried, and unfortunately it didn't go anywhere. Every year between 1989 and 2017, uh, Representative John Conyers from uh, Michigan, Democrat, uh, introduced the Commission to Study Reparation Proposals for African Americans Act. As the name indicates, H.R. 40 did not require reparations. It was just to look into it, uh, to study it. It just called for the comprehensive research into the nature and financial impact of African enslavement, as well as the ills inflicted on black people during the Jim Crow era. Only then can remedies be considered or suggested. And every year the bill stalled. Democrats and Republicans, everybody, everybody shot it down every year, every single year for 19 years. It's fucking embarrassing. Uh, What about targeted education and job training programs for the descendants of slaves whose families have been trapped in cycles of poverty for over 150 years? Can we at least look into that? I think shame on us for not uh, ever, you know, actually considering it Uh, back to the 10 points. Now, number four, we want decent housing fit for the shelter of human beings. We believe that if white landlords will not give decent housing to our black community, then the housing and the land should be made into cooperatives so that our community, when government aid or with government aid can build and make decent housing for its people. Again, I don't like the communist angle, Uh, but, you know, but decent and affordable housing should absolutely be made available to everybody. Uh, we want education, number five, we want education for our people that exposes the true nature of this decadent American society. Uh, we want education that teaches us our true history and our role in the present day society. We believe in an educational system that will give our people a knowledge of self. If a man does not have knowledge of himself and his position in society and the world, then he has little chance to relate to anything else. Couldn't agree more. Uh, the curriculum. The curriculum talk to kids in school seems to be way more diverse now than it was when I was a kid based on what I've seen with Kyler Monroe. Uh, So I feel like things are moving in a good direction. That's good. Hail Nimrod. That's good. Uh, When I was a kid, I didn't learn shit in school about Africa or the Middle East or or really anything other than just information filtered through a Judeo-Christian kind of Western European lens. I feel like like the best way to be racist and prejudiced is to only look at the world through your little bubble, right? Your little cultural and racial point of view, travel to enough other nations, read enough uh, foreign literature. And you will realize if you keep an open mind that we're all pretty much the same. You know, when you, when you get, when you get down to the core of it, we're all involved in the same struggle. we got different ideologies, you know, uh, different religious and political notions, but, but deep down, everybody pretty much wants the same shit. Um, number six, we want all black men to be exempt from military service. We, we believe that black people should not be forced to fight in the military service to defend a racist government that does not protect us. Uh, we will not fight and kill other people of color in the world who, like black people, are being victimized by the white racist government of America. We will protect ourselves from the force and violence of the racist police and the racist military by whatever means necessary. There's a little uh, Malcolm X, by whatever means necessary. Uh, I understand the logic here, but maybe maybe this one shouldn't have been written down. Uh, this reads as a declaration of war. And, and when you're fighting a nation with too many soldiers and weapons for you to ever even hope to defeat them— Maybe just kind of keep that quiet. Maybe maybe have number six be discussed internally, secretly, never written down. If you don't want to get on in the, the FBI's kind of watch list. Like if I ever uh, want to start a revolution, it's gonna be it's gonna be like Fight Club, right? First rule of overthrowing the government: it's not fucking talk about overthrowing the government, which which I do realize creates some organizational problems. Uh, Number seven, we want an immediate end to police brutality and murder of black people. We believe we can end police brutality in our black community by organizing black self-defense groups that are dedicated to defending our black community from racist police oppression and brutality. The Second Amendment to the Constitution of the United States gives a right to bear arms. We therefore believe that all black people should arm themselves for self-defense. Yeah, I mean, I I agree. The the main point of having an armed citizenry is to prevent your government from being uh, becoming tyrannical and abusing you. You know, I got a lot of emails after my gun control suck a while back, let me know that despite our military having superior weaponry, an armed populace still absolutely helps keep our government in check through the threat of a, you know, uh, insurgency. You know, uh, we want number eight, we want freedom for all black men held in federal, state, county and city prisons and jails. We believe that all black people should be released from their many jails and prisons because they have not received a fair and impartial trial. May want to change the wording on this one. Uh, How about we believe that all black inmates should have their cases reviewed by, you know, fair juries, mixed juries. While many black inmates uh, had been wrongly incarcerated, uh, not all black inmates were in jail because they were the victim of racism. Many were there because they broke laws. Uh, But again, I understand where this is coming from. I understand the sentiment. Uh, We want, number nine, we want all black people to be able to take any and all property from the descendants of slave owners effective now. This includes uh, physical property, financial property. Uh, intellectual property and sexual property. Your bodies will be ours, you white devil motherfuckers. Um, that's in, that's intense, and that's that's not number nine. Uh, whoo, that'd be too much. That would be whoo. Nah, can't launch a revolution when you're when you're that aggressive right off the rip. No, number nine. I actually um confused myself. I wrote that down in my notes and then forgot I had written down a lie. And I was like, what the fuck? How did they think they would fucking get away with that? You can't just take people's land right now. What the fuck? Oh, oh yeah. I made I made that up. I was the one who fucking made up that lie. Number nine said, we want all black people when brought to trial to be tried in a court by a jury of their peer group or people from their black communities, as defined by the Constitution of the United States. We believe that the court should follow the United States Constitution so that black people will receive fair trials. The 14th Amendment of the U.S. Constitution gives a man a right to be tried by his peer group. A peer is a person from a similar economic, social, religious, geographical, environmental, historical, and racial background. To do this, the court will be forced to select a jury from the black community from which the black defendant came. We have been and are being tried by all white juries that have no understanding of the average reasoning man of the black community. I do love that one. All white juries deciding black trials, especially during the the racist 1960s, that's that's pretty fucked up. uh, Should not have happened. And finally, number 10, we want land, bread, housing, education, clothing, justice, and peace. When in the course of human events, it becomes necessary for one people to dissolve the political bands which have connected them with another and to assume among the powers of the earth, the separate and equal station to which the laws of nature and nature's God entitle them a decent respect of the opinions of mankind requires that they should declare the causes which impel them to the separation. We hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with certain inalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty and the pursuit of happiness that to secure these rights, governments are instituted among men deriving their just powers from the consent of the governed, that whenever any form that whenever any form of government becomes destructive of these ends, it is the right of the people to alter or abolish it and to institute a new government, laying its foundation on such principles as and organizing its powers in such form as to them shall seem most likely to affect their safety and happiness. Prudence indeed will dictate that governments long established should not be changed for light and transient causes, and accordingly, all experience hath shown that mankind are more disposed to suffer. While evils are sufferable, than to right themselves by abolishing the forms to which they are accustomed, but when a long train of abuses and usurpations, usur- usurpations, usurpation, oh, fucking whatever, sorry, that word uh, eludes me right now. Pursuing invariably the same ob- object, evinces a design to reduce them under absolute uh, despotism. It is their right; it is their duty to throw off such government and to provide new guards for their future security. Whew, that's a mouthful. That's a lot. That's a lot of info. Uh, I love it. I mean, uh, they never had a chance to overthrow the U.S. government, but I love the spirit of this message. It's like, yeah, when the government turns and it isn't serving the people, time to overthrow the government. I love America, and, uh, and loving it should include wanting to destroy it if it ever loses its way, right? The only reason America was started was to be able to pursue the American dream, be able to work your way into owning a home, sending your kids to college, chasing a nice retirement for yourself, an inheritance for future generations. And for Huey, Bobby, people living in their neighborhoods, this is damn near impossible, if I was him, I would, have, I would have felt the same rage. Now imagine, I would have probably fucking hated white people. Would have wanted to burn this country to the ground. And if we ever become as racist and hateful as we used to be, if we ever stop evolving towards more and more acceptance for people of different sexual preferences, skin colors, cultural affiliations, religious or non-religious belief systems, gender identities, et cetera, if we become more and more intolerant as opposed to tolerant, then, then I hope we do burn this motherfucker to the ground and start over. Let's not make America great again. Let's make it great for everyone for the first fucking time. It's been great before, but only selectively. Never great for everyone. That's why I've always hated that slogan. Wasn't great for women when workplace sexual harassment and date rape was basically a cultural norm. Wasn't great for homosexuals when they were given the Matthew Shepard treatment time and time again. Wasn't great for Asians when they were being run out of the fucking towns and thrown into shallow graves while they built railroads and worked mines. Wasn't fucking great for inner city black Americans when they were so scared of police they felt they needed to arm themselves and follow the police. And if you want to read politics into this rant, that's on you. It's not there for me. If wanting equality for everyone uh, who isn't actively hurting others with their choices isn't part of your moral compass, if that offends you somehow politically, then you're no member of the cult of Curious. You're not on Team Meat Sack. Uh, Get get in Nimrod's butthole. Uh, Get in there. That's where apparently you belong. Okay, now back to the show. Back to the show. Let's talk about following the police, uh, what I was referencing there, after a word from today's final sponsor. Before... We discuss other areas outside of Europe. Uh, Oh, what am I talking about? Sorry. Uh, A word from today's final sponsor. I lost my mind for a second there. Went to the wrong notes. Today's Time Suck is brought to you by The Great Courses Plus. I I am on a lifelong quest to learn as much as I can about the past and the world around me. And The Great Courses Plus is an invaluable tool in this regard. Well, with The Great Courses Plus, you get unlimited access to in-depth, insightful information on virtually any topic Uh, This streaming service uh, has thousands of lectures to explore on topics like world history, archaeology, astronomy, civil rights, art, art and literature, even cooking or learning a new language. And they're all presented by top-notch experts who are so passionate about what they teach. You can watch or listen entirely on your schedule from anywhere. If you heard last week's Suck, you know that I've been enjoying the course, The History of Ancient Egypt. Uh, Egyptologist Bob Breer examines the three periods of ancient Egypt, including Sneferu, the First Pyramids, the mysterious reign of Queen uh, Hatshepsut, Hatshepsut the murder of King Tut I like King Tut easy Egyptian name uh, even talks about how to, how to read hieroglyphics lecture, lecture 44 still my favorite the middle Ptolemies. the decline Bob talks about Dr. Bob talks about one of the Ptolemy rulers fleeing to Cyprus when the people revolted against him his wife stayed behind to rule in his place that pissed him off so he let her know that he was not happy by having their son killed dismembered and then having the scattered parts of their son sent to her on her birthday. Surprise! Ha ha! You never saw that coming, do you? That is so messed up. That's so messed up. It might even uh, you know, make uh, Ed Kemper be like, Father, Father, you've gone too far, Father. You really need to get your zapples under control. So learn more about the Ptolemies. So much more. Uh, to help you get started, The Great Courses Plus is offering a free trial with unlimited access to learn about anything. To get this great offer, sign up through thegreatcoursesplus.com Slash Time Suck. That's the Great Courses Plus dot com slash Time Suck. Link in the episode description. Push the Great Courses button in the Time Suck app. Push, 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 push it real good. That was weird. Uh, now back to the first organized activities of the Black Panthers. Late 1966, within a few months of organizing, the Black Panther Party began organizing police patrols, started doing what they called cop watching, open carry laws. This is fascinating to me. Open carry laws of the 1960s allowed citizens to openly carry loaded weapons in hand, basically wherever they pleased. As long as you didn't point at somebody, openly threaten them with it. You could just walk right into Macy's. You could walk in with a loaded shotgun, semi-automatic military style rifle, safety off. (laughs) Gotta say, I'm a gun owner and I am so glad you can't do that shit now. I'm so glad you just can't walk into a bar with a loaded rifle in hand. Uh, Carrying a firearm directly in your hands now Uh, particularly in a firing position or combat stance is known as brandishing a firearm. And that's a crime even where I live in Idaho, which is a very permissive open carry state. Uh, Actually the current law in Idaho section one, uh, section 18, three, three zero three reads exhibition or use of a deadly weapon. Every person who not in necessary self-defense in the presence of two or more persons draws or exhibits any deadly weapon in a rude, angry and threatening manner, or who in any manner unlawfully uses the same, in any fight or quarrel is guilty of a misdemeanor. Misdemeanor. What? <laughs> That's pretty crazy that if, I, if I'm interpreting this law correctly, I could pull out a loaded gun at Denny's here in Coeur d'Alene. I could point at the ceiling. As long as I'm not pointing at somebody, I could just kind of casually wave it around. Just yell stuff like, I'm fucking tired Away from my pancakes.
1: Just get my goddamn pancakes going. Coffee water's cold. Warm up my coffee
0: water. Give me my pancakes. somebody could be like, sir, put the gun away. You bring my fucking pancakes. I'll stop waving my gun around as soon as I can use the gun hand to grab some tasty-ass butter and syrup and shovel it into my fucking gullet. Get my pancakes. I'm getting hangry. (laughs) After all that, I could be arrested and charged with a misdemeanor. That's mind-blowing. Mr. Cummins, the court finds you guilty of carrying your weapon in a rude, threatening manner. I, I didn't threaten anyone, Your Honor. I didn't threaten. I didn't threaten shit. And nonetheless, it is most definitely rude to wave your gun around at Denny's and demand pancakes with gratuitous and unnecessary profanity. The court hereby orders you to pay, at your convenience, a two hundred dollar fine. <laughs> I should do it. Break a shot if I did it. Uh, also, it wasn't illegal to follow the police and carry whatever weapons they pleased. So the Black Panthers did exactly that. They would follow the police while other officers would follow them. They had enough of police brutality and were ready to protect their neighborhood again by any means necessary. One of their slogans, they'd taken from Malcolm X. If contra- confronted, members would cite laws they'd proved uh, that proved they'd done nothing wrong and would threaten to take court action if the police violated their constitutional rights. Uh, the Black Panthers were huge gun rights advocates. They walked around rifles in hand quite often. Uh, the aggressive means in which they yielded the right to carry would actually lead to California now having some of the toughest gun control laws in the nation. Uh, that all got started with the Black Panthers. Uh, how nervous does it would it make you though if you were an Oakland police officer, right, just on patrol? Just uh, hey, hey, Greg, that guy was doing about seventy and a thirty-five. Uh, don't you think we should maybe pull him over? Uh, hey, hey, Chad, do you see those guys in the car holding shotguns and three fifty-seven sitting about a block behind us? Oh yeah, yeah, I see those guys. That's why we're going to let that go. Oh, so so we're just going to let everyone just get away with everything now? Hell no, Chad. As soon as we see some white dude do something, we are going to arrest the fuck out of him. Um, Further adding to tensions with local police, the Black Panthers began casually referring to all law enforcement officers as pigs, chanting things loudly while armed like the revolution has come. It's time to pick up the gun off the pigs. Not great for, uh, you know, community police relations. January 1967. The Black Panther Party opens its first official headquarters in Oakland in a storefront, publishes uh, the first issue of the Black Panther Black Community News Service. Uh, in February of 67, membership numbers get a bump when the Black Panthers escort Malcolm X's widow through the Oakland airport, give them a little prestige. Public association between Malcolm uh, Malcolm's widow and the group gives them some revolutionary legitimacy. New Black Panther recruits are required to learn how to wield a weapon, uh, learn how to clean and shoot guns, In addition to understanding their right to carry firearms and how to communicate that right to the police in California. Huey Newton puts his knowledge of the law on display when he and SEAL are stopped by Oakland police officers in early 1967 in a vehicle filled with weapons. When questioned about the guns, Newton simply replied that the only thing he was obliged to do was give his identification name and address. At the request of the officer, Newton stepped out of the car, rifle in tow, and refused to explain why he and other Black Panthers were carrying weapons. As onlookers gathered, the police tried to disperse the crowd while Newton welcomed the crowd to gather and come over. He knew that under California law, bystanders could legally view an arrest as long as they didn't intrude. Since there were no violations for the police to charge the Black Panther members with and a growing number of witnesses, uh, they were able to leave the scene without any trouble from law enforcement. Man, that's that's some balls. That is some balls. Uh, and again, I love law enforcement officers. Uh, we need them to keep the general public safe. However, being a law enforcement officer doesn't give anyone the right to abuse the law. Uh, the best law enforcement officers are public servants, not not billies, uh, billies, not billies, you guys. You fucking hear it. Don't be a billy. What if I just kept going? D- didn't clarify. Not billies. Don't, uh-uh, not Williams, not billys. not bills. So don't be a bill, put it on a bumper sticker, drive it around town. No, uh, the best law enforcement officers, not bullies, abusing the very laws. They're sworn to protect or sworn to uphold. Can I talk English? Not well. It's amazing that I can uh, uh, do a podcast. April 25th, 1967, the Black Panther Party uh, newspaper features the bold-faced headline, Why Was Denzel Dowell Killed? To rally action over the death of a young man shot by police in northern Richmond, uh, a small, impoverished, all-black town, uh, or actually north Richmond, about uh, 15 miles north of Oakland. In the early morning hours of April 1st, 1967, in north Richmond, Uh, Denzel Dowell lay dead in the street. The police said that Dowell, a 22-year-old construction worker, had been killed by a single shotgun blast to the back and head. They claimed he had been caught burglarizing a liquor store and when ordered to halt, failed to do so. But the coroner told a very different story. Uh, His body bore six different bullet holes, and there was reason to believe Dowell had been shot while surrendering with his hands raised high. His mother said, I believe the police murdered my son. An all-white jury found that Dowell's death was justifiable homicide, after just 30 minutes of deliberation, many people in North Richmond did not agree. The newly formed Black Panthers did not agree and rushed to meet with the Dowell family and get more details about what happened. They started holding street corner rallies protesting his death as an act of police brutality, confronting officials, arguing that only by taking up arms could the black community put a stop to police brutality. On so- or one Sunday, the police came knocking on Mrs. Uh, Dowell's door while Newton was there, and when she opened the door, Huey later recalled a policeman pushed his way in, asking questions. I grabbed my shotgun, stepped in front of her, telling him either to produce a search warrant or to leave. He stood for a minute, shocked, then ran out to his car and drove off. Again, this guy, no shortage of balls. Emboldened by this confrontation, Newton and Seal planned a rally. And a few days later, in the spring of 1967, the Panthers showed up armed and in uniform and closed off the street. Black leather jackets, black berets, many wearing sunglasses, all with guns in hand I got to say, looking pretty dope as fuck. Panthers had no shortage of swag. Word had spread and almost 400 people of all ages came to the rally. Many working class and poor black people from North Richmond showed up wanting to know how to get some measure of justice for Denzel. or Den, it's, Den, it's D-E-N-Z-I-L. Denzel Dowell. And in turn, how to protect, protect themselves and their community from further police attacks. People lined up both sides of the block. Some elderly residents brought lawn chairs to sit in while they listened. Some of the younger generation climbed on cars. Grab some popcorn, watch the show. Uh, some police cars arrived on the scene, but chose to keep their distance. A Contra Costa County helicopter patrolled above. According to sheriff spokesman, the department took no other action because the Panthers broke no laws, and as required, displayed their weapons openly. Neighbors showed up with their own guns. One young woman who had been sitting in her car got out, held her up her M1, M1 rifle for everyone to see. The Panthers passed out applications to join their party, and over three hundred people filled them out. According to FBI informant Earl Anthony, he had never seen black men command the respect of the people the way that Huey Newton and Bobby Seale did on that day. Crazy that the FBI was already watching. The FBI is going to become a very big part of this story here soon. Uh, This rally and the actions of the Panthers in general over the past few months scaring the shit out of the California government. Following the rally, Don Mulford quickly drafts the Mulford Act, a bill that would prohibit the carrying of loaded firearms in public. When Newton, Seal and other Panthers caught wind of this new legislation being proposed, they quickly organized a protest. This might be my favorite part of the story. On May 2nd, 1967, Panther chairman Bobby Seal led a group of 30 fully armed Black Panthers to the California state capitol in Sacramento. Then-governor Ronald Reagan happened to be there. Uh, he was there that day, giving a, giving a speech. The news crews that were covering him quickly shifted to interviewing and filming the newly arrived Panthers. Before entering the Capitol building, Bobby Seale read a written statement on the Capitol steps right in front of Governor Reagan, saying the American people in general and the black people in particular must take careful note of the racist California legislature aimed at keeping the black people disarmed and powerless. Seale and five others uh, ended up getting arrested during this protest, but not for gun charges. The group pled guilty to misdemeanor charges of disrupting legislation. It isn't saying there's pictures of them just inside the Capitol and just right in front <laughs> Just holding, just openly holding shotguns and assault rifles. Uh, the following months, in June and July of 1967, there there were massive race riots in cities like Cleveland, Newark, Chicago, and Detroit. Uh, the city of Newark, New Jersey, erupted in violence as black residents battled police following the beating of a black taxi driver, leaving 26 people dead. 26. The 1967 Detroit riots were among the most violent and destructive riots in U.S. history. By the time the bloodshed burning and looting ended after five days, Forty-three people were dead, 342 injured, nearly 1,400 buildings burned, some 7,000 National Guard and U.S. Army troops have been called into service. It all started that one with the raid of an illegal nightclub on 12th Street, 12th Street in Detroit, hotspot of inner-city nightlife, both legal and illegal, at the corner of 12th Street and Claremont. Uh, a man named William Scott operated a, a, a blind pig, which was an illegal after-hours club. It might be 12th Street and Claremont, actually. Uh, on, on weekends out of the office of the United Community League for Civil Action, a civil rights group, uh, the police vice squad often raided establishments like that on 12th Street. And at 3.35 a.m. on Sunday morning, July 23, they moved against Scott's club. On that warm human night, Scott was hosting a party for several veterans, including two servicemen recently returned from Vietnam, and the bar's patrons were reluctant to leave the air-conditioned club. Out in the street, a crowd began to gather as police waited for vehicles to take 85 patrons away. An hour passed before the last person was taken away, and by that time, 200 onlookers had lined the street, and then a bottle crashed into the street. The remaining police ignored it, but then more bottles were thrown, including one through the window of a patrol car. The police fled as a small riot then erupted. Within an hour, thousands of people had spilled out onto the street from nearby buildings. Looting began on 12th Street, and closed shops and businesses were ransacked. Around 6.30 a.m., the first fire broke out, and soon much of the street was ablaze. By mid-morning, every policeman and fireman in all of Detroit was called to duty. On 12th Street, officers fought to control the unruly mob. Firemen were attacked as they tried to battle the flames. Things just got worse from there. Yeah, a phenomena called white flight, white middle-class city residents fleeing urban centers to live in the suburbs in the 40s and 50s and 60s reduced the tax base in formerly prosperous downtown neighborhoods. Creating urban blight, poverty, racial discord for the residents who remained, who were largely impoverished racial minorities. So poor urban, underserviced black neighborhoods, policed almost entirely by white law enforcement, uh, didn't make a good uh, mix, didn't make for a good nonviolent mix. And then in late July of 67, the state capitol demonstration in May in California that had given the Panthers a tremendous amount of national exposure, increased membership levels, and ultimately didn't stop the bill from passing both the state assembly and Senate. Uh, ironically, that bill got the full support of the NRA. In addition to repealing open carry laws in California, Mulford made it illegal to take firearms into the Capitol. On July 28th, the bill was signed into law by governor Reagan, who later commented that he saw no reason why on the street today, a citizen should be carrying loaded weapons. Uh, the Panthers can no longer now openly and legally carry loaded weapons while they follow police. So this puts a serious dent in the revolution. On October 28, 1967, the Oakland chapter of the Black Panther movement hits another snag when Panther Minister of Defense Huey Newton, co-founder, involved in a shootout with Oakland police after a traffic stop. Officer John Frey is killed. Newton is shot in the abdomen. Uh, Tracked to an Oakland hospital, he's arrested and charged with first-degree murder. Uh, New leaders step in to keep the movement going while Newton is incarcerated. Panther member Eldridge Cleaver, who joined the party after being released from prison on December 2nd, Uh, began the movement to free Huey, a struggle the Panthers would devote a considerable amount of attention to in the coming years, while the party would spread its roots further into the political spectrum, forming coalitions with various other revolutionary parties. Opinions on Eldridge Cleaver, he's an interesting character in this story. They vary wildly uh, when you watch interviews of former Black Panthers. Essentially, most seem to think that he was either a visionary genius or a complete fucking maniac or both. Uh, Cleaver was attracted to the Black Panthers because of their focus on armed struggle. Cleaver was an inmate of correctional institutions in California almost constantly from his junior high school days until 1966 for crimes ranging from position of marijuana to rape to assault with intent to murder. While in prison, he also became a fa- uh, fan and a follower of the teachings of Malcolm X and Karl Marx. He also wrote essays that would be collected into Soul on Ice. The essays Cleaver documented his evolution uh, the essays in the Soul and Ice book uh, documented Cleaver's evolution into a radical black liberationist. And and it became a very highly influential, influential ah, highly influential book in the Black Power movement. The book was and remains fairly controversial. Uh, the central premise of the of the book is the is the trouble of identification as a black soul, which has been colonized by an impressive white society that projects its brief, narrow vision of life as eternal truth. Uh, in the book, Cleaver admitted to raping black girls as a practice run before seeking white women as prey, but claims that in jail he'd come to consider those acts as inhuman. Well, well that's good. Jesus. Not sure you could earn that same forgiveness and be part of any kind of social justice movement today if you did that. Now, I, I, I'm sorry. Oh, whoa. Whoa. Did Did you actually just say that you raped black women as a practice run to learn how to more effectively rape white women? Did you just say that? Okay, you did. Okay, I thought I heard fucking crazy talk. Uh, your participation in the revolution is over now, e- effectively now. You can join uh, possibly the rapists who promised not to rape anymore revolution, if that is a thing. Uh, along with 10 other books, such as Slaughterhouse-Five by Kurt Vonnegut, Black Boy by Richard Wright, The Naked Ape by Desmond Morris, Soul and Ice would be part of a 1982 Supreme Court case. When a Long Island, New York school district sought to remove these books from its libraries due to them being anti-American— anti-Christian, anti-Semitic, and just plain filthy. Uh, The Supreme Court ended up with a split ruling in this case. I do love the legal language of just plain filthy. I like how that was added there. And why would you like these books removed from your school libraries? They are just plain filthy, Your Honor. Define filthy. They're nasty as fuck, Your Honor. They're like vomit and shit thrown in the same bucket, swirled around. Uh, dumped on top of some rotten meat, then eaten, then vomited, then shit back into the same bucket for someone else to take their crack at it. They're filthy, your honor. They're just plain filthy. Uh, Elders was supportive of taking what, you know, you felt was yours to any means necessary. Again, that uh, by any means necessary. One of of his quotes was, we shall have our manhood, Uh, we shall have it, or the earth will be leveled by our attempts to gain it. (laughs) I feel like that's kind of a rapey quote. Might be reading into that now, but uh, it seems kind of rapey for a rapist uh, to be talking about taking manhood. And and if you'll excuse me, I, I'm going to keep this recording. I have to take a sip of water. This is the longest uninterrupted chunk between segments I think I've ever done on Time Suck. Wow, throat's getting dry. At one Black Power rally, uh, Eldridge uh, said about then-California Governor Ronald Reagan, and I quote, <laughs> This is one of the things that made uh, some people think like, I might be a little mentally unstable. He said, uh, he's a punk, a sissy, and a coward. And I challenge him to a duel. I challenge him to a duel to the death or until he says Uncle Eldridge. And I give him his choice of weapons. He could use a gun, a knife, a baseball bat, or a marshmallow. I'll beat him to death with a marshmallow. That's how I feel about him. (laughs) Uh, Not surprisingly, uh, Reagan, not a huge Eldridge fan around this time. Uh, When Cleaver uh, taught a class at UC Berkeley a few years later, When Reagan heard about it, he said, if Eldridge Cleaver is allowed to teach our children, they may come home one night and slit our throats. Ironically, a little footnote to this story. Ironically, Eldridge would then later become super conservative and openly endorse Reagan when Reagan ran for president. uh, Eldridge would also later become a Mormon, (laughs) a religion that is pretty conservative and and pretty white. I got to say, it feels like maybe one of the whiter religions. I guess people can change. Uh, Another new member of the party to take a leadership position once Newton was behind bars was Stokely Carmichael, the former chairman chairman of that Alabama Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee and a nationally known proponent of black power. He he becomes the party's prime minister in February 1968. And Stokely was arguably uh, far less rapey than Eldridge. And by less, I mean not at all. Uh, Nothing I could find there. Way more racist. Pretty racist. He was adamantly against allowing whites into the black liberation movement at any level. He felt that whites could not relate to the black experience, which I do agree with, and that they would have an intimidating effect on blacks, which I can't disagree with since I'm not black. However, you've just also, when you do this, given a huge middle finger to any white person who wants to help you, who wants your movement to succeed. And since there were about, I don't know, nine times as many white people in America as there were black people at that time, you have put a big fucking nail in your coffin, right? You've you've put a huge nail in the coffin of your own movement by doing that. At so many points in the suck, I, f- I feel so much empathy, as much as a white dude can for this movement. Like, it must have been so nice for, for young black children to see such strong black role models who were not afraid of standing up to those who would them for so many generations. But when you go full us versus them mentality, when all white people become the problem, you lose. Just like when racists label all black people as a problem or all Mexicans is the problem. That's not how humanity works. You can't function that way, and, and you know, for any longevity, into any kind of real movement, not not anymore. Thank God. Not all white people were in favor of slavery, even even during the height of slavery. I think about this this logic, this type of logic in today's polarized society. Like whenever somebody has an attitude of "fuck Republicans" or "fuck Democrats," or when they think that all conservatives are this way or all liberals are that way, they're always wrong. You know, just like it's bad, lazy writing to make a villain in a movie like all evil, like cartoonishly you know, just a caricature of evil. Uh, it's bad, lazy thinking to believe that, uh, you know, certain real people are all bad or that they're all part of the problem. Unless you're talking about defining them by a, a certain uh, behavior that makes that, that, that defines the group that, you know, they belong to. Like all convicted pedophiles are bad babysitters. That's, that's probably true. Uh, definitely true. All convicted pedophiles are a terrible babysitting first option. I That's gotta be true. Right? But Anyway, you get, you get what I'm saying. On April 4th, 1968, civil rights leader, Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King, uh, Jesus Christ, so many fucking words. I'm going to start over. On April 4th, 1968, civil rights leader that I, I do understand why NPR and those kind of places, sometimes where they talk that way. It's so much easier to say words, right? If you're like, on April 4th, 1968, civil rights leader, Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. is assassinated in Memphis, Tennessee. I mean I could my pronunciation uh you know correct percentage would go way up if I lost all passion for what I was saying and just spoke in a in a manner that makes twenty to forty percent of the population wanna kill themselves.
1: On April fourth, nineteen sixty eight, all right saying
0: No one talks like that. Uh, Hopefully on a podcast. Anyway, the real Reverend Doctor. He's assassinated in Memphis. Years later, the King family would hire attorney William Francis Pepper to investigate King's shooting. And he would present evidence from 70 witnesses and 4,000 pages of transcripts. And Pepper alleges in his 2003 book, An Act of State, that the evidence implicated the FBI, CIA, Army, and Memphis Police Department and organized crime in the murder of King. While the government wasn't proven in court to be involved, there remains widespread speculation that they helped kill King or at least allowed it to happen. And many Panthers at the time did think that law enforcement was involved, and they were understandably fucking angry. They decided to strike back by organizing an attack on Oakland police officers. Uh, Very much an an eye for an eye mentality here. So two days later, after King's assassination, April 6, 1968, 17-year-old Panther treasurer Bobby Hutton is killed by police during a violent confrontation in West Oakland. Panthers maintained that Hutton was shot while unarmed and with his arms raised to surrender. On April 6th, Cleaver and 14 other Panthers led an ambush of Oakland police officers during which two officers were wounded. Cleaver was wounded during the ambush. 17-year-old, again, you know, Black Panther member Bobby Hutton killed. Uh, Panthers were armed with M16 rifles and shotguns. Years later in 1980, uh, you know, although the uh, the Panthers would say at the time, like, you know, he was unarmed, he wasn't that. Years later in 1980, uh, Cleaver, when Eldridge Cleaver returned to the country, After fleeing in the wake of this gun battle of charges and it came out of this gun battle against him, he would state that he had led the Panther group on a deliberate ambush of the police officers and provoked the shootout. He also at this time discredited the Black Panthers, uh, you know, stating we need police as heroes. Now, some speculated his admission could have been a payoff to the Alameda County justice system, whose judge had just days earlier let Eldridge Cleaver escape prison time. Uh, Cleaver would be sentenced to community service after getting charged with three counts of assault against three Oakland police officers. Uh, so disputing stories about who was at fault here, police or the Panthers, a documentary on Huey Newton, a Huey Newton story claims that Bobby Hutton was shot more than 12 times after he had already surrendered and stripped down to his underwear to prove he was not armed. So very conflicting stories there. Uh, on September 8th, 1968, a jury acquits Newton of his murder charge, but convicts him of voluntary manslaughter. And this was for that earlier, uh, different police shootout charge. Uh, Newton is sentenced to two to 15 years. Uh, And then free Huey demonstrations intensify around the nation. Two days later, on September 10th, rifle shots are fired into Black Panther National Headquarters in Oakland. A poster in the front window of Newton holding the gun while seated in an African wicker chair is apparently the target. Two intoxicated off-duty Oakland police officers are blamed for the incident and dismissed from the police force. Uh, So the tension between the Bay Area Police and the Panthers obviously is continuing. Through the fall of 1968, activism builds around the notion that Newton is a political prisoner. The free Huey campaign leads to the opening of Black Panther chapters in more than twenty other cities. So, you know, a positive part of his incarceration is that uh, it's building the movement. More and more people are joining because of, uh, you know, um, because of you know a public awareness of the Black Panthers due to their free Huey demonstrations. Um, and after the after these other chapters are opened, the free breakfast for children program, program is launched in St. Augustine's Episcopal Church in Oakland. Uh, this to me that this uh, free breakfast for children program, maybe the coolest accomplishment of the black Panthers as far as out of just like one individual accomplishment inspired by contemporary research about how important the role of a good breakfast was in a kid's ability to learn. Basically you can't pay attention to class. If you're super hungry, uh, the Panthers began to cook and serve food to the poor inner city youth of the Oakland area. The program became so popular by the end of the year that the Panthers set up kitchens in cities across the U S feeding over 10,000 kids every day before they went to school. Uh, in November of 1968, young Fred Hampton joins the movement. Fred Hampton, my favorite Panther. You're going to find out why here soon. Like, if the Panthers were made into action figures, I would have wanted a Fred Hampton action figure. And the Fred Hampton figure would probably have to occasionally take the Eldridge Cleaver action figure aside and just whisper something like, you know that you know that rape is super fucked up, right? Like, you, you know that it's wrong. Like, good for you for admitting it, but it cannot happen again. It should have never happened. I don't know why you're still even here. But if it happens again... I got to put you down. I got to put you down. Uh, Anyway, Hampton had just turned 28 or 20 years old. Yeah, sorry, just 20 when he joined the movement. He was a gifted student and a gifted athlete, dreamed of someday playing center field for the Yankees. He graduated high school in Maywood, Illinois, a suburb of Chicago with honors in 1966. He was enrolled in uh, Triton Junior College in nearby River Grove, Illinois, studied pre-law. He and fellow Chicago area Panthers followed police, watching for brutality, using Hampton's knowledge of the law of self-defense. He also became active in the NAACP. He led 500 members and a youth council there. He was handsome, strong, charismatic. Uh, you watch some videos of this guy, and you can see right away he was a natural leader. Within a year in joining, uh, of joining the Panthers, he was able to broker a peace treaty be- between some of Chicago's most powerful and violent street gangs, con- convincing them that continuing to kill each other would just keep them and their families entrenched in a never-ending cycle of death, poverty, and incarceration. Even more impressive, he forged an alliance between Black Panthers and the Young Patriots Organization and the Young Lords. This is crazy to me. The Young Patriots Organization, the YPO, uh, they were based in a a poor uptown neighborhood of Chicago known as as Hillbilly Harlem, uh, an, an area populated by displaced white Southerners. Many YPO members were openly racist, flaunting controversial symbols associated with Southern pride. Uh, but like blacks and Latinos, the, the white young patriots and their families experienced discrimination in Chicago in their case because they were poor and from the south. The young lord started off as a Puerto Rican turf gang in Chicago in 1960, had just recently evolved into a civil and human rights movement, kind of a Puerto Rican uh, equivalent to the Black Panthers. They were opening chapters around the nation as well, uh, and they were headquartered in Chicago. And Hampton got these two groups to align with the Black Panthers into what he called the Rainbow Coalition a term another civil rights leader, uh, the Reverend Jesse Jackson, would later adopt. Hampton convinced these groups and members of others that the real problem in America was not the oppression of one particular minority group, but the oppression of the working class in general, and that the only chance they had to change the system and bring about more economic equality uh, was if they fought together instead of fighting one another. Dude, how slick was this guy? In the 1960s, as a black man, he got racist backwoods hillbillies to join his cause, right? I just, I just picture him approaching them, uh, <laughs> like one of their rallies, like p- approaching one of the young patriots at one of the rallies. I hey, said, so "What do you guys stand for? Why, 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 why power? I, I dig it, brother. Fighting for your own. Uh, what? Wh- wait, what? What? Uh, you, 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 don't mind? You like it? You like what? You like, like white power? Hell yeah! White power is a lot like black power, just a different shade of the same struggle. I Are." Are you are you fucking with me? White power. What? Wait, that's what that's what I say. I say, you, hey, you, you know, you know, you're a black fella, right? White power. Now you say black power, Jethro. Uh, come on, come on. I, I I say white power. You say a uh, black uh, uh, black black power. Fuck yeah, feels good, doesn't Jethro? Yeah, I do kind of like it. I do kind of I, I enjoy
1: it. Black, uh, black power. Black power. Uh, black power. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Ding 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 Black Power ding 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 Black Power ding 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 Black Power
0: I don't know what do it has to I mean uh, anyway, just that scene I was just trying to build it in my head I just love the 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 image if that were to happen of of Red Hampton convincing uh a kind of a a twitchy kind of hillbilly racist white dude like I hey, on out of here I don't like it Come on, come on, man. Just, just try Say, say it one time. Just say black power. Nah, I ain't going to say that in no time. We're all, we're all we're all part of the same struggle. You can do it. <laughs> black, black power. <laughs> oh, okay. All right. I like it. It does, it does sound good. Uh, black power. Oh, black power. Uh, Hampton quickly rose to becoming the leader of the Chicago chapter of the Panthers, teaching free political education classes every morning at 6 a.m., organizing a free— I don't know why that's the part that impressed me the most. Look, it was pretty cool that he taught political education classes for free to people, but he fucking did it at 6 a.m. You understand what I'm saying? He got up early. Uh, He would organize free breakfast programs for school children, so much more. And this is, he's 20 years old. By mid-1969, he'd become one of the nationally known faces of the movement. Part of what led Fred to join the movement was the arrest of who would become uh, known as the Chicago Eight. You'll also see it called the Chicago Seven because uh, the person we're going to talk about, uh, the eighth member, uh, was actually uh, kind of cleared of charges and then it dropped down to Seven. But anyway, uh, I think a movie might be done in the next year or so about the Chicago Seven. Related to the Chicago 8, uh, Chicago 8 arrested in 1968 in Chicago. It was around the, uh, it revolved around their arrested. The 1968 Democratic National Convention was held in Chicago in late August to select that party's candidates for the November 1968 presidential election. Prior to, during the convention, which took place at the International Amphitheater in Chicago South Side, rallies, demonstration marches, and attempted marches took place on the streets and in lakefront parks, about five miles from the convention site. And these activities were primarily in protest of President Johnson's policies for Vietnam. Anti-war groups had petitioned the city of Chicago for permits to march five miles from the central business district uh, to within sight of the convention site to hold a number of rallies uh, you know, near the convention, to camp in Lincoln Park, uh, and to be in other lakefront parks. The city denied all the permits except for one afternoon rally at the old band shell at the south end of Grant Park. Uh, the city also enforced an 11 p.m. curfew in Lincoln Park. Confrontation with protesters ensued as the police enforced a curfew, uh, stopped attempts to march to the International Amphitheater, and cleared crowds from the streets. The Grant Park rally on Wednesday, August 28, 1968, was attended by about 15,000 protesters. Other nearby activities involved hundreds or thousands of protesters. After the large rally outside of the venue, several thousand protesters attempted to march to the International Amphitheater, but were stopped in front of the Conrad Hilton Hotel, where the presidential candidates and their campaigns were headquartered police worked to push the protesters out of the street using tear gas, verbal and physical confrontation hitting people with clubs. Uh, protesters retaliated by throwing rocks and bottles, damaging private commercial property. The police made scores of arrests the televised uh, television networks broadcast footage of these violent clashes, powerful images. you know people being beat by police, people attacking the police. Uh, you know they're they're cutting away footage from presidential candidates while they're doing this. Over the course of five days and nights, the police made numerous arrests in addition to using tear gas, mace, batons on the marchers. Again, Yeah, hundreds of police officers and protesters were injured. Dozens of journalists covering the actions were also clubbed by police or had cameras smashed or had film confiscated. In the aftermath of what was characterized as a police riot by the U.S. National Commission on the Causes and Prevention of Violence, a federal grand jury indicted eight demonstrators and eight police officers. And one of the eight demonstrators indicted was Black Panther co-founder Bobby Seale charged with conspiracy and inciting a riot. And young Fred Hampton, he's seen all this go down in his, in his city. Uh, after being arrested, Bobby said, to be a revolutionary is to be an enemy of the state. To be arrested for this struggle is to be a political prisoner. The evidence against Seal was very slim. He was a last-minute replacement for Elders Cleaver, had been in Chicago for only two days of the convention. During the trial, one of Seal's many uh, uh, protests, one of his many vocal protests, led Judge Julius Hoffman to have him bound and gagged in court. Uh, and the image of this gagged black man, you know, bound in court became a huge rallying point for the black liberation movement. I mean, the court, it, it made him look like it was, he was a slave. He was like, he was treated like an animal. On November, December, bleh, on November 5th, 1969, Bobby Seale was removed from the, uh, the case, but was sentenced to four years in prison for 16 counts of contempt in court. Three months for each outburst. That's pretty fucked up. You get four years in prison because you're angry about being charged with some bullshit you didn't do, and you get angry about it in court, and then you get (laughs) prison time because of that. I'm always surprised more judges and prosecutors aren't murdered. Not kidding. I'm not saying they should be. Not advocating their death. But if I was put on trial for some bullshit I didn't do, and the judge went like extra hard on me, and then I was sentenced to a long-term behind bars when I was for sure innocent, man, it would be hard not to plot the death of that judge or prosecutor. Or even certain jury members while I was rotting in prison. Not saying it would be right to kill a judge. I'm just saying if, if a judge or prosecutor ever railroads me into a guilty verdict for something I didn't do, I am probably going to try and kill you. I just want to put that out there for anybody listening. Uh, so late in 1969, or late in 1969, she does not go well for Bobby Seale. It gets even worse for Fred Hampton, young star of the movement. This is the saddest part uh, for me of today's episode. The qualities that made Hampton, young Hampton, a rising star in the Panther movement also made him a huge target for the FBI. I cannot emphasize enough how much the FBI fucking hated the Black Panthers so much. J. Edgar Hoover would have loved to personally execute with his bare hands every member of the Black Panthers for for treason in front of a live televised audience. He never said that. That is definitely the feeling you get when you look into this. Like, check this out. A few years after all this goes down, a few years after Chicago Eight. And what's going to happen to Fred Hampton here. In March of 1971, a group of anonymous activists calling themselves a the Citizens Commission to investigate the FBI, broken into a small FBI office in Pennsylvania, stole more than a thousand FBI documents. They ended up exposing the FBI's co Pro program, a secret counterintelligence program created to, as the LA Times would later put it, investigate and disrupt dissident political groups in the U.S. According to these documents, Hoover had directed... Excuse me, all of the Bureau's offices to expose, disrupt, misdirect, discredit, and otherwise neutralize African American organizations and leaders, including the Southern Christian Leadership Conference, the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, the Nation of Islam, Martin Luther King, Stokely Carmichael, the Black Panthers, and more. A written goal of the FBI counterintel program was to prevent this is a quote to prevent the rise of a Black Messiah who could unify the movement. They also wanted to prevent the appeal of the Black Panther Party to black youth. Like This is a stated, written goal of the FBI. Okay, so now we know that. We know what the FBI's agenda is. Now back to 1969, Chicago, specifically December 3rd. Hampton taught a political education course that evening. Not just teach them in the morning. This guy's doing good shit all the time. He taught a political education course that evening at a local church, which was attended by most members of the local Panthers, Afterwards, as was typical, several Panthers went to the Monroe Street apartment to spend the night, including Hampton's bodyguard, William O'Neill, who later admitted to being an FBI informant that had been sent in to infiltrate Hampton's chapter and get close to Hampton in exchange for dropping some criminal charges against O'Neill. O'Neill made dinner for everyone that night and slipped barbiturates into into Hampton's drink to sedate him for a planned FBI raid later that evening. O'Neill left this point and at about 1:30 a.m, December 4th, Hampton fell asleep mid-sentence talking to his mother on the telephone. Although Hampton was not known to take drugs, Cook County chemist Elaine Berman, or, oh, excuse me Elaine, Eleanor Berman would report that she ran two separate tests which each showed evidence of barbiturates in Hampton's blood. An FBI chemist would later fail to find similar traces, but Berman stood by her findings. Of course the FBI didn't find shit. Those murdering Hoover puppet fucks would later be found guilty by U.S. court of illegally conspiring to destroy the Panthers, and also plan the very raid that would take Hampton's young life that night. While the FBI planned the raid, they did not take part in it, at 4 AM, a heavily armed Cook County police force arrived at the site divided into two teams, eight in the front of the building, six in the rear. At four forty five AM, they stormed into the apartment. Mark Clark, sitting in the front room of the apartment with the shotgun in his lap, was on security duty. He was shot in the chest, died instantly. A single round was fired from his gun, caused by a reflexive death convulsion after the raiding team had shot him. That is the only shot the Panthers would fire that night. Automatic gunfire was converged at the head of the south bedroom where Hampton slept, unable to awaken as a result of the barbiturates. He was lying on a mattress in the bedroom with his fiancée, who was nine months pregnant with their child, Two officers found him wounded in the shoulder, and fellow Black Panther Harold Bell reported that he heard the following exchange. That's Fred Hampton. Is he dead? Bring him out. He's barely alive. He'll make it. Two more shots were then heard, which were later found to have been fired point blank at Hampton's head. He was executed. According to Johnson, one officer then said he's as good as dead now. Uh, No, he's good and dead now. The seven Panthers who survived the raid were indicted by a grand jury on charges of attempted murder, armed violence, and various other weapons charges. These charges were subsequently dropped because they were bullshit trumped up charges. Uh, During the trial, the Chicago Police Department claimed that the Panthers were the first to fire shots. However, a later investigation found that the Chicago Police fired between 90 and 99 shots while the Panthers had fired one time. A decade later, In April 1979, the U.S. Seventh Circuit Court of Appeals found that the FBI and its government lawyers had obstructed justice by suppressing the Black Panther Party files and concluded that there was substantial evidence to support the conclusion that the FBI defendants, in planning and executing this raid, did participate in a conspiracy designed to subvert and eliminate the Black Panther Party and its members, thereby suppressing a vital radical black political organization. The court further found there to be convincing evidence that these defendants also participated in a separate post-raid conspiracy to conceal the true character of their pre-raid and raid activities, to harass the survivors of the raid, and to frustrate any legal redress that the survivors might seek. Hampton's family and the surviving members of the raid did finally get awarded $1.85 million in a settlement from Cook County in 1982, believed to be the largest civil settlement ever awarded in a civil rights case up until that point. Given that money because of what happened that night, man, the government did not like the Black Panther movement, literally assassinated its most prominent, most charismatic young leader. That is beyond fucked up. I mean, ah, Again, love this country, man. Great country. But anybody who's like, our government doesn't do any shit. Get the fuck out of here. They've done all kinds of shady shit. And certain members of our government are undoubtedly doing shady shit right now. Right? No, everyone's like, no, but it's good. now. no, it's not. Power corrupts, man. There are, there are some very corrupt motherfuckers. We just don't know exactly who they are doing very corrupt shit. We'll learn like 30 years later right now. Uh, A month after Fred Hampton's government sanctioned and administered execution, a different Black Panther leader is freed. Co-founder Huey Newton is released on $50,000 bail, pending a retrial after serving 33 months in prison for the death of Officer Frey. The Free Huey Movement has won. Huey Newton has been freed. He moves into a top floor penthouse apartment at 1200 Lakeshore Avenue in Oakland. After two retrials, the charges against him ultimately dropped. Newton's back. He's in charge. But his return to leadership fragments the movement. In January 1971, Newton expels Geronimo Pratt, who since 1970 had been in jail facing a pending murder charge. Geronimo was a high-ranking party member who had served two tours in Vietnam, heavily decorated uh, uh, military. If Pratt's name sounds familiar, it's because he it showed up in the Tupac and Biggie Suck Sucks 76. Geronimo was Tupac Shakur's godfather. Uh, Newton also expels two of the New York 21, 21 Panther members who had been arrested for a bombing plot. One of those members was a Afini Shakur, Tupac's mother. the that trial eventually collapsed and all 21 were acquitted of all charges. Fucking FBI, man. Dedicated to destroying the Black Panther Party through continued indictments and incarceration of its members and leaders. Uh, trumped up indictments, bullshit incarceration. Uh, Newton also expelled his own secretary who flees the country, kicks her out of the movement. Newton and various other Panthers believed the Black Panthers should participate in local government and social services. While others thought the Black Panther uh, Party should be in constant conflict with police. And basically, Newton starts to kick out everyone who doesn't agree with his uh, side of what they should focus on. Now, Eldridge Cleaver, guy we talked about earlier, he's on the side of fighting 24-7, 365 days a year. Uh, And he gets kicked out too, even though he's basically already out. Cleaver hadn't really been involved in a consistent, meaningful way with the movement outside of rhetoric since 1968. When he fled to Cuba to avoid trial for an attempted murder charge that sprang from that involvement or his involvement in that ambush on uh, Oakland police officers we talked about already that resulted in the death of Bobby Hutton. After a brief stay in Cuba, hanging out with Fidel Castro, Eldridge had bounced to Algeria when Castro learned that the CIA had been keeping tabs on Eldridge. And since the CIA wanted Castro dead, Castro wanted no part of anyone uh, who was also, you know, in their crosshairs. Eldridge set up uh, an international Panther office in Algeria, a nation friendly to black revolutionaries that would not extradite them to the United States. Eldridge also took a few trips to North Korea after befriend, uh, befriending Kim Jong-il. Uh, the Black Panther Party's publications actually began to reprint excerpts from King uh, Il-sung's writings. Man, talk about, talk about going from the frying pan into the fire. Why would you fucking align yourself with North Korea? America in general was not a friend of the black man in the 1960s. Uh, And I know in some ways it it still isn't in certain factions, but holy shit, North Korea wasn't. North Korea wasn't and isn't a friend to any human being on Earth whose name isn't Kim Il-sung, Kim Jong-il, or Kim Jong-un. May 25th, 1971, co-founder Bobby Seale gets some good news. He has his murder conspiracy case against him dismissed in New Haven, Connecticut. Uh, that was following a suspension of his contempt of court convictions in Chicago. He's freed after 21 months in jail. There's just a series of charges against these guys, most of which get dropped because they were just, they were just trying to incarcerate them to just, uh, yeah, just to gut the movement. Uh, while serving his four year sentence for those contempt of court convictions earlier, the ones that, you know, where he was fucking bound and gagged in court. Seal had been put on trial again in 1970 and in, in the new Haven, Black Panther trials, Several officers of the Panther organization had murdered a fellow Panther, Alex Rackley, who had allegedly confessed under torture to being a police informant. The organization's getting paranoid because they're constantly being infiltrated. The leader of the murder plan, leader George Sams Jr., turned state's evidence, testified that SEAL, who had visited New Haven only hours before the murder, was the one to order him to kill Rackley. The trials were accompanied by a large protest at the trial in New Haven. The jury was unable to reach a verdict. 1971 is a terrible year overall for the Panthers. Hundreds of party members quit the Black Panther Party around the nation, alarmed by both the split between Huey Newton and other members and the violence against its own members, you know, uh, by different factions brought to light most notably by Bobby Seale's case. It will be discovered later that the FBI had sent Newton and Eldridge and other Black Panther members various bogus letters. Just manipulated them, stoking anger between the two. And they had different, you know, plans in each group. They'd be like, fucking Eldridge, man. He's he's even saying some crazy shit. This guy over here, he wants you fucking dead. Like they just put people in their organizations to constantly, uh, you know, uh, foster an environment of paranoia and and just get the uh, the members to kill each other. In 1971, the FBI actually dedicated a budget of $7.4 million to pay informers to harass and intimidate the Panthers. That is more than twice the amount they budgeted for informers and organized crime that year. Between 1969 and 1971, at least four Panthers were shot to death by other Panthers because of feuds created and perpetuated by FBI informants. In early 1972, Newton shuts down various Black Panther chapters around the country due to infighting created because of FBI disinformation. Hoover eventually calls the FBI off of the Panthers, satisfied that they will continue to tear each other apart. And we know that based on statements and leaked FBI documents, the underground remnants of the Los Angeles Black Panthers chapter eventually reemerged as the Crips, a powerful street gang, a street gang that advocated social reform before it got into crime. Uh, Did you know that Crips may stand for community resources for independent people? Uh, I didn't either before this suck. I swear to God, this this isn't one of my weird lies. Uh, (laughs) Bloods... And crip sucked. Anyone. I think it'd be fascinating. Can our space just please vote that up? Uh, and full disclosure, while some gang historians do uh, point to the Crips coming out of the Black Panther Party, others say that the word Crip evolved out of the word crib, a word gang founders Tukey Williams and Raymond Washington possibly used to describe various factions of their gangs. Uh, I'll look further into the etymology of the word Crip if we hopefully suck that topic someday. Okay, so the Black Community Survival Conference is held at the Oakland Civic Auditorium on March 29th, 1972. Uh, this is one of the last kind of big, cool things uh, the Panthers were able to pull off. 10,000 bags of groceries are given away with canned goods on the bottom, packaged goods in the middle, and a four-pound chicken in every bag. Pretty cool. Uh, June 24th, 1972, Bobby Seale announces his candidacy for mayor of Oakland. Panther Elaine Brown announces her candidacy for city council. Both loose. Uh, Elaine Brown does remain a social activist living in Oakland to this day. This hurts the party. You know, it's just uh, uh, just a sign that they're not gaining momentum. They're, they're losing power now. In early 1974, leader Huey Newton uh, embarks on a major Black Panther Party purge, expelling co-founder Bobby Seale and Bobby's younger brother, John. He kicks out numerous other top party leaders. Dozens of other Panthers loyal to Seale resign or desert. Uh, in August of 1974, Newton allegedly murders Kathleen Smith, a teenage prostitute, and is also charged with pistol whipping his tailor, Preston Callens. Weird sighting on that crime. Supposedly, uh, if he did kill them, he killed them because he was getting pretty heavy into drugs around this point and was uh, kind of had a hair-trigger temper and supposedly both just, just referred to him as baby, which was a nickname he had as a kid that he fucking hated. Uh, Newton reportedly confides to friends that Smith is his first non-political murder. He flees to Cuba. Elaine Brown takes over leadership in his absence. For all intent and purposes, the movement's dead at this point. Barely hanging on in Oakland. Really only surviving through a few social programs, most notably the Oakland Community School, which had opened in 1973 to educate the children of Panthers, had about 150 kids attending it. Uh, in, in December of 1974, Panther accountant Betty Betty Van Patter is murdered after threatening to disclose irregularities in the party's finances. Van Patter goes missing on December 12, 1974, and her severely beaten corpse is found on a San Francisco Bay beach. Newton later allegedly confesses to friends that he ordered Van Patten's murder and Van Patten had been tortured and raped before being killed. In 1977, Newton returns from Cuba to face murder charges, but not before meeting People's Temple leader, former suck subject and Jonestown co-leader Jim Jones in Havana. How weird is that? Remember Jimmy Jones? Strange, strange Jimmy Jones. Jimmy was a diehard communist by 1977 and a former major figure in the Bay Area civil rights movement where they had met previously. What a crazy connection. Newton actually spoke to temple members in Jonestown via telephone, expressing support for Jim Jones and what he was doing in Guyana. Anyone familiar with the Jonestown massacre knows that the communist experiment Jim created did not work out too well in the end. Newton's cousin, Stanley Clayton, was one of the few residents of Jonestown to escape the area before the 1978 mass murder of 900, roughly roughly 900, uh, temple members by Jones and his fanatics through forced suicide, for, through drinking that flavor rate. In October 1977, three Black Panthers attempt to assassinate Crystal uh, Gray, a key prosecution witness in Newton's upcoming trial, who had been present the day of Kathleen Smith's murder. The organization, once based in the liberation of Black Americans, has now devolved into little more than a gang. Unbeknownst to the assailants, they attacked the wrong house, and the occupant returned fire. Uh, During the shootout, one of the Panthers, Louis Johnson, was killed. The other two assailants escaped. During Newton's trial for assaulting Preston Callens, Callens changed his testimony several times. Eventually told the jury he didn't know who assaulted him. That's suspicious. Newton was uh, acquitted of the assault in September 1978. Uh, he was convicted of illegal firearms possession. After the assassination attempt on Crystal Gray, uh, she declined to testify against Newton. So after two trials and two deadlock juries, the prosecution decided not to retry Newton for Smith's murder. Then in 1980, Newton earned a PhD in the Social Philosophy Program of, his, of the History of Consciousness at the University of California, Santa Cruz. 1982, the remnants of the Black Panther Party officially and totally dissolve. The Oakland Community School closes. Newton is charged with embezzling $600,000 from the school. Uh, he's sentenced to six months after pleading no contest to stealing 15000 in state aid intended for the school. Seven years later, on August 22, 1989, Huey Newton, 47 years old, is shot to death on a West Oakland street by gang member Tyrone Robinson allegedly over a drug deal. Robinson is convicted of murder. Newton had been allegedly involved in drug dealing according to numerous interviews with former Panthers for years by this point. Uh, The other co-founder, Bobby Seale, is alive and well. 82 years young, still touring the country as a social activist. How cool is that shit? Uh, You can find Bobby uh, Seale's schedule by Googling his name and then clicking the news results and digging around. He does have a website, but the website is the website one would expect from an 82-year-old man. It does not have tour dates. Someone help Bobby out. And that takes us out of today's Time Stuff Timeline.
1: Good job, soldier. You made it back.
0: Barely. No idiots of the internet today, because it's essentially just a repeat of last week's idiots of the internet. Uh, Just replace anti-Semitic rhetoric with even more aggressive anti-black rhetoric. And then add tons of aggressively anti-white racism. And then add a bunch of death-to-all-cops rhetoric. Uh, are there a lot of good comments uh, as well? Uh, yeah, there are. The The history of uh, Panthers is a complicated one, man. Black Americans, including the Panthers, were for sure oppressed. Uh, they were the victims of untold incidents of police brutality. They were the victims of a, a government conspiracy to take them down, victims of racism. And then, sadly, many also became racist themselves. I, I You know, I just can't get behind that. I, I just— I don't like the rally of black power, like I said earlier, any more than the rally of white power. It's meat sack power, meat sack power or no power for me. Hail Nimrod. The fight to me is about greater economic equality and equal opportunity to fight for your dreams, for the, for every color of meat sack. Uh, I guess I'm, guess I'm more Dr. King than Malcolm X, but easy for me to say as a white dude, again, easy for me to say, never had a cop get rough with me, never been asked to use a separate bathroom or been threatened by strangers due to the color of my skin. Uh, many Panthers took anger, uh, you know, towards many racist cops, which which I get as much as I can, and turned that into rage towards all cops, which I can't condone. But again, easy for me to say, easy for me to play armchair revolutionary. Uh, do I think that everything the Panthers did was great? Obviously, no, but I'm glad they existed because much of what they did and stood for and symbolized was, I, I feel necessary to enact social change, uh, social changes that needed to happen. At their best, they were fucking superheroes. Real superheroes, not Marvel creations. You know, they bravely showed other oppressed black Americans that you do not have to just bend over and take it. You can stand up and stand up proud for your rights. And I think the black American needed them to do that in the 1960s. And they they, they were also complicated. They were imperfect heroes like all real life heroes are, you know, and some of them became villains. Some of them were villains posing as revolutionaries. It was a very fragmented group. Just like all cops weren't bad, you know, all panthers weren't good. Cleaver comes off like a fucking maniac. To me, uh, hard to get behind a guy who, who blames committing rape on racial oppression. Fred Hampton comes across like a savior. You know, he was the black messiah that the FBI was so afraid of. Would love to pop into an alternate reality, some other dimension, where the FBI and Chicago police did not murder him in cold blood and just see what amazing shit he did for not only black America, but for America in general. That saying, only the good die young, seems to have been written about him. Dude seems from every single thing I could find written about him from every speech I watched him give to be a fucking saint of a human being. Then there was co-founder Huey Newton. Such a complicated dude, man. Uh, He did a lot of good with the social justice programs, but then may have also killed several people. I watched interviews with several uh, former high-ranking Panthers that said that, you know, he was just never the same after he was freed from prison. His mood was unpredictable. He allegedly assaulted verbally, physically, and even sometimes sexually several other Panther members. Some former members said he was a, he was a violent, drug-addicted psychopath in his later years uh, ruling the Panthers. But Newton was also publicly a, uh, publicly a very important symbol for young black Americans. He was handsome. He was strong. I mean, he was fucking jacked. Looked like an action figure. He was brave. He didn't take shit from anyone, especially if they were white. He was charismatic. He was an incredibly intelligent leader. He didn't just get a doctorate handed to him. I should also point out that there, there um, you know, uh, wasn't just dudes in the Panthers. There were a lot of female members. And I feel terrible for many of them. Even though they were part of a revolution against oppression, against racism, they still faced oppression internally. They still faced sexism from both white and black America. The Panthers were still a patriarchal organization. And many of them, uh, of the women, left early in the movement. I mean, how much must, must that have sucked to be fighting a fight for equal rights based on your skin color, only to have to also fight a fight within your revolution for equal rights based on your genitalia. Never thought this suck would lead me to think about Oprah Winfrey, but it did. Oprah Winfrey, man, she became an industry leader as a black woman in America. I, I you know, I got a little glimpse of, uh, into how hard that must be. A, a tiny glimpse in this suck. I mean, hail Lucifina always liked Oprah, but uh, respect her even more right now. I feel like hitting this fucking button again. Yes, I get it. I, as much as I can get it. Holy shit. What what black women specifically have, have had to overcome in this country is fucking mind boggling. No wonder Aretha sang the shit out of this song. Mm. So what's the legacy of the Panthers? What is their lasting impact? In a word, in a word it's complicated. You know, at their worst for an organization founded as a response to racism, many of their members ended up being pretty racist themselves. At their best, extremely inspirational. They inspired a new generation of black Americans to be strong, to love themselves, to love being black, to not lay down and give up uh, when it came to racism. Real stories just don't often fit into convenient narratives that, that play out like they're written for a, a TV melodrama. Life is fucking complicated. Y- you can think that the, the Black Panthers were freedom fighting, inspirational heroes, and you're right. And you can think that the Black Panthers were violent, racist, cop-killing criminals. And you're right. You know, it, it depends on which one you're talking about and which era. And it, it's just, again, so complicated. What I love about the Panthers, what I found most inspiring about this suck was their fighting spirit. It is so easy just to take it in life. So easy just to just to bitch and never actually fight. Really fight for what you believe in. So easy to talk about, you know, to talk the talk, but not walk the walk. The Panthers, while you may not agree with some or even any of their messages, they walked the fuck out of their talk, right? They stood up for their convictions. Uh, They fought for their convictions. Some of them fucking died for those convictions. Outmanned and outgunned. They refused to stand down when it came to standing up to the man. They fought the powers that be. I I, I got public enemy going in my head now. Uh, and, And the powers that be may have won, but they still fought them. How many of us have ever fought for our ideals as hard as some of the Panthers fought for theirs? Something to think about. Time now for top five takeaways. Time suck. Top five takeaways. Number one, the Black Panther Party, originally named the Black Panther Party for Self Defense, was an African American revolutionary party founded in 1966 in Oakland, California, by Huey Newton and Bobby Seale. The party's original purpose was to patrol African American neighborhoods to protect residents from acts of police brutality. Number two, the Black Panthers formed in the wake of Malcolm X's assassination and during a period of tremendous social upheaval and unrest in America when riots and protests were commonplace in America and when African-Americans were statistically extremely disproportionately disenfranchised compared to any other race of Americans. Number three. California's comparatively tough gun laws can be traced back to the Mulford Act of 1967, a law passed in response to the Black Panthers. I had no idea the Black Panthers inspired a trend to push for tighter and tighter gun control measures that have continued to this day. Number four, the Black Panther Party officially dissolved in 1982, and co-founder Huey Newton died in a drug-related murder in 1989. Newton's funeral was held at Allen Temple Baptist Church, where he was a member, some 1,300 mourners were accommodated inside and another five to 600 listened to the service from outside. The other co-founder, Bobby Seale, continues to preach social activism and stand up to the man to this day with somebody, please help him with his website. And number five, new info. Let's talk for a second about the new Black Panthers. There is currently a black nationalist organization in the United States called the, the Black Panthers. They formed, or the new Black Panthers. They formed in Dallas, Texas in 1989. They consider themselves to be the successors to the original Black Panther Party. They are not. Co-founder Bobby Seale has been very, very clear over and over again. I've watched him say it in speeches. He cannot stand them. In a speech I watched, Mr. Seale tells the audience that they deserve a huge thumbs down. And that what they stand for is totally antithetical to what Bobby's Panther stood for. When he began the movement, the Southern Poverty Law Center, the group that helped cut the balls off the KKK in America, uh, labels the new Black Panther Party a hate group. They preach insanely racist rhetoric. They are not revolutionaries. They're hate mongers. Khalid Abdul Muhammad, one of the party's future leaders uh, at, at this point when he said this in 1994, said, our lessons talk about the bloodsuckers of the poor. It's that old, no good Jew, that imposter Jew, that old hook nosed bagel eating, lox eating, Johnny come lately, perpetrating a fraud, just crawled out of the caves and hills of Europe, so-called damn Jew. That's He said that in a fucking speech in 1994. King uh, Samir Shabazz, former head of the party's Philadelphia chapter, said the following in a National Geographic documentary in 2009. He said just straight up, I hate white people, all of them. Every last iota of a cracker, I hate it. We didn't come out here to play today. There's too much serious business going on in the black community to be out here sliding through South Street with white, dirty, cracker, whore bitches on our arms, and we call ourselves black men. What the hell is wrong with you, black man? You're at a doomsday with a white girl on your damn arm. We keep begging white people for freedom. No wonder we're not free. Your enemy cannot make you free, fool. You want freedom? You're going to have to kill some crackers. You're going to have to kill some of their babies. Wow! Well, King Samir, you have just had your invite to join the cult of the curious fucking revoked. Don't like that attitude. You're not on Team Meat Sack. You don't get to join the private Facebook group. And you're not welcome on Discord. Uh, and I changed your name to King Go Fuck Yourself. Uh, Hail Nimrod.
1: Time Suck Top 5 Takeaways.
0: Whew. Black Panthers have been sucked. Man, that was a tricky suck. I worked a lot of extra hours on that one. A lot of overtime, so much to absorb, so much to consider. I feel like I could spend weeks and weeks and weeks and weeks on that one, months, and still be like, ah, oh, well, I should have said this or I should have said that. Ho- I hope I did it some justice. Hope my uh, my black meat sacks know I love them. Uh, hope my white meat sacks know I love them too. And hope my law enforcement meat sacks uh, know I love you guys and gals and that you don't deserve to be unjustly attacked any more than citizens do. Uh, To quote, arguably the most famous victim of police brutality in the past several decades, Rodney King, can we all just get along? Uh, Okay, thank you to the Time Suck team. Thanks to Queen of the Suck, Lindsay Cummins, High Priest of the Suck, Harmony Vela Camp, Jesse Guardian of Grammar Dobner, Uh, Reverend Dr. Joe Paisley, Time Suck High Priest, Alex Dugan, the guy's a bit elixir, Danger Brain, Axis Apparel, Sophie, Fact, Sorceress Evans. Thanks for the fine research to get me started. Great meeting you in person, by the way, Sophie, in New Jersey. Uh, at the, uh, at the, at the stress factory. I got the shirt on right now, uh, stress factory. Uh, let's talk about a community real quick. Have you joined the cult to curious private Facebook group? Have you? And, and again, Samir, fuck, not you, not you. Uh, uh-uh. uh there's almost 7,000 time suckers in the private cult to curious group on Facebook. Maybe more actually now. And almost 1500 discord members, uh, link to the discord chat room messaging app right on the time suck app. Link to the private Facebook group and the Discord channel also in today's episode description. Next week, I, uh, I encourage more potential controversy uh, with, with the spaces or chosen topic of Pedophile Island. What is Pedophile Island? Uh, the Washington State Department of Social and Health Services operates special commitment center, SCC programs that provide specialized mental health treatment for civilly committed sex offenders who have completed their prison sentences. Uh, the island was uh, was initially uh, considered uh, Uncle Secret's Island and uh, Brother Touchy Fingers, but they went with uh, they went with uh, Special Commitment Center. Of course, that's fucked up. Not true. S- uh, superior courts in the county in which an individual uh, uh, was previously convicted of a sex crime have the authority now in Washington to determine if individuals meet the legal definition of a sexually violent predator and then can civilly commit them to the SCC, which is legal speak for sending them to an island where they're not allowed to leave after their prison sentence has been completed. Uh, and they're just kept there until they're no longer deemed a threat to sexually reoffend. They could potentially be kept there until they die. Is this the best way to deal with pedophiles? How big of a problem are pedophiles? How many are out there? How often do they victimize? H- how many lives have been negatively affected by pedophiles and other sex offenders? Do they even deserve rehabilitation? Can they even be rehabilitated? Tune in next Monday for a deep dive on a very uncomfortable subject. Tune in now for today's Time Sucker Updates.
1: Updates. Get your Time Sucker Updates.
0: First update is felt uh, very apropos um, today for uh, today's uh, you know um, topic. Uh, the first update comes in from a longtime law enforcement sucker I've met uh, several times uh, who wishes to remain unnamed in this message. And he writes, hey, guys, I wanted to bring this to your attention. I know how much you appreciate the sacrifices made by law enforcement in this country. Lucas Dowell embodies everything his last name rep- uh, implies. Do well. Yeah, Dowell is spelled do well. And uh, and, and this anonymous uh, Timesucker sent me a link to an article about Virginia State Trooper Lucas B. Dowell Uh, who was killed when someone inside a home fired a weapon at police executing a search warrant warrant during a recent drug investigation. The person who killed Trooper Dowell, identified by police as Corey Johnson of Cumberland County, was shot and killed by police. And our fellow Meatsack continues with, I trained him when he first hit the road and he was a shift partner for many years before leaving the Charlottesville area. Man, I am so sorry, buddy. This uh, happened. If you do mention anything on a future episode, please leave my name out of it. Yep. I don't want to detract anything away from this. I don't want, I don't bring this to you because I want sympathy or attention. He was a good trooper, the kind everyone would be proud to have working for them. And everyone should know the sacrifice he made. Uh, And then he writes, whether you are for or against drugs, I hope none of our listeners is for killing cops. This is just the kind of thing I think about when people refer to drug use as a victimless crime. I don't mean to offend anyone, but I just learned of this as it happened about nine hours ago, and I'm still processing my anger. Thank you for who you are and what you believe, and thank you for the cult of the curious. Thank you, man. And what a, what a, I mean, absolutely terrible that this happened. I am so glad, though, that you did send in a message right away. How how perfect for, for this week. Just, to, just a reminder that, yes, there are a lot of great law enforcement officers out there, and they sacrifice so much to keep us safe to keep people of every color safe. And there are law enforcement officers of every color. Uh, thank you for being an incredible uh, law enforcement officer. I, I base that on numerous interactions I've had with you and the many stories you've sent in over the past few years. Thoughts go out uh, with you. I, obviously I can't name you on the show, but thanks for sending this message in. Now we'll shift gears, lighten things up with a hilarious message from time Haley Ford, who writes Dan, I listened to the inspirational episode. This is one of the ones over the holidays. And you talked about how the mom ate peanut butter while she was pregnant and her (laughs) baby... And it ended up causing her baby's skeleton to grow outside of its body. I flipped the ever... (laughs) I flipped the ever-loving fuck out. I ate peanut butter all the time and I'm three weeks away from delivering. I was so convinced that my baby was... (laughs) I was so convinced that my baby was going to have an exoskeleton, which is fucking stupid... Because this is my second baby, and I've seen 3D ultrasounds of her. She is not, in fact, an ant baby, you fuckface. Every episode, you say some shit that gets me. (laughs) The first one I can remember was during the episode about Teddy Roosevelt. You said that the teddy bear was named after him because he got caught wearing a woman's teddy. Totally believed you. It's literally happened during every episode. I believed you, like many others, when you mentioned that people used to fuck dogs in caves or some shit. And I believed you because of the toy box Killer episode. I was like, oh, so maybe he just had that nasty desire too. And it made complete sense to me. You're an asshole. <laughs> On a separate note, I love your podcast. I'm finally caught up and having withdrawals. I love that you donate money every month and that you've changed so many people's lives. I have become much more open-minded and even enjoyed the podcasts I didn't want to listen to. That's, oh, I love hearing that. I forced myself to listen to all of them ended up loving all of them because of the way you present the information and the gotchas you throw into each one. I know lately I feel like I've been pulling a little bit away from every because I I want people to get lulled into a false sense of security (laughs) on a separate note. I know you get so many requests for shout outs, but I would so much appreciate it if you could give my boyfriend Dominic a shout out. He is the most amazing person. He works on the weekends doing side jobs to make extra money for us, then comes home and cooks and plays with our three year old daughter. Like I mentioned before, we're having our second daughter on the 25th. He has gone above and beyond to make sure that we're ready for her arrival. To give you an example of the kind of person he is, we were driving around one day and it was ridiculously hot outside. This was back when he drove around conducting CNA hospice visits and we saw a homeless man on the side of the road that he apparently saw frequently. He told me that he keeps a case of water bottles in his car and when he has the chance, he gives the homeless water bottles so they don't have to become dehydrated. He is unbelievably caring and selfish and does what he can for anyone and everyone around him, even if he doesn't know them. He's the best thing to ever happen to me and my little girls and he is... The one that introduced me to your comedy and time slick, So I love him even more. He's an inspiration to me every day. I understand if you're not able to announce this, but it would mean the world to me if he heard you read this. Smiley face. Again, thank you, you beautiful sucker for all you do. Hoping to be a spacer soon so we can help keep time going. Haley Ford. Thank you, Haley. And thank you, Dominic, for being a good dude. Love how much you two are in love. Man, life is fucking short. Spend as much of it as you can with love in your hearts. I don't care if that sounds corny as fucks. true. Love, love says the angry, bearded, air banjo-playing Idaho man. Uh, now, a Mothman update coming in from Time John Dvorak. John writes, Most holy pontificated Pope, <laughs> Pope I write to inform you that Rich Haddam, the screenwriter of the Richard Gere Mothman Prophecies film, admitted to completely making up the Mothman at Chernobyl thing. I did not know that. I love these updates. The film ends by alluding to other Mothman sightings from around the globe. Oh, I don't think I ever watched it to that point, I guess, or I just forgot. It's been so many years. The podcast Astonishing Legends plugged Time Suck many moons ago, and their endorsement is how I arrived at the Cult of the Curious. I love both Time Suck and Astonishing. Yeah, me too, man. Oh, those, guys, those guys are great. And well, Rich Haddam is a friend of theirs and has been on a few Astonishing episodes. He specifically admits that he made the whole Chernobyl thing up. So no Mothman there, John. Thank you, John. Uh, man, I love those kind of updates. Um, yeah, because I did not come across that. Uh, and now another funny one. This, this one, (laughs) this one killed me. This is, uh, I believe this is, yeah, this is the last one for today. Uh, subject line of you're such an asshole. This comes in from time sucker, Greg Hawk to our fearless suck master. I truly love your podcast. I'm a mailman. I am in and out of businesses, walking through neighborhoods and driving along services or driving along servicing curbside mailboxes. It's usually mind numbing, lonely work. I listen to various podcasts throughout the day through earbuds because, well, because of you mainly. I look forward to your podcast like no other. I listen to fucking yes. Uh, your show informs, entertains me uh, through two parts of my work week. I'm an OG space wizard. Oh man, thank you for being a space wizard. Uh, it used to be three, but I'll f- oh, forgive you for that. Oh yeah, the bonus socks were f- fucking killing me. Uh, listening today to the Black Death episode, I knew I would be using a new sign off for my emails. I have been using my favorite quote from your shows, loved everything about it. Wouldn't change a thing. Two out of five stars. It's <laughs> That joke's still funny. Originally, that was going to be the entirety of my email today. But then the letter you read uh, to close the show changed the tone of this missive. It's one thing to be walking along delivering mail and have to stop what I'm doing because I'm laughing so hard that snot bubbles are forming. But it's something else to have to wipe away tears and be sniffling like a prepubescent girl that just got her heart broken by the boy in class that ignored her. How about a heads up, you asshole? How about a fucking spoiler alert or something? That letter was so well-written and so poignant, I contend that only a cyborg wouldn't sniffle a little after hearing you read that. That poor man has all the sympathy I have to give. I can only imagine the hell he's experiencing. It is truly one of the worst things that a parent can go through. I've had scares with my kids and grandkids now, but nothing in comparison to this. Thank you for your decision to make the Spacers donation to help in some small way. I'll be adding a check of my own in the following days. Load the Greg. Aim the Greg. Fire the Greg. Hail Nimrod, Greg Hark. Uh, perfect note to end on today, Greg. Uh, uh, thanks for being so great, man. And uh, I'll, I'll end with that as, as well. Load the Greg. Aim the Greg. Fire the Greg.
1: Next time, suckers. I needed
0: that. We all did. Have a great week, everyone. Another Secret Suck on Thursday for you, Space Lizards. Thank you again for the donation money. Pedophile Island next Monday, and if you start a revolution this week, please let every meat sack of every color be a part of it, and make sure, while you're freedom fighting, that you keep on sucking
1: Joe, I need some airbase. Ding, ding for dang 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 for dang dang god damn it paisley airbase get in here get in
0: here, get in here. I, you can't hear
1: <laughs> pulling up to mickey d's just for drinks oh yeah that's me nothing extra just perfection and a straw coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer.
0: Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. If you suddenly had an extra hour show up in your day every day, what would you do with it? Work out? Sleep? Read a book? Play Fortnite?